This is NALC President Brian Renfro, and this is my president's message for the December 2023 postal record entitled New Initiatives. Last month, more than a thousand branch leaders from across the country gathered in New Orleans, Louisiana for our national rap session. It was a busy weekend full of training, education, productive conversation, and camaraderie among our members. I'm confident that this year's RAP session attendees have returned to their branches, regions, and state associations energized, motivated, and eager to share what they've learned. I appreciate Branch 124 and the Louisiana State Association for welcoming everyone to their home city and state. We kicked off the RAP session in true New Orleans fashion with the traditional second line band, perhaps a first in NELC history. As NALC president, I'm fortunate to travel across the country year-round to be with our members at regional rap sessions, state conventions, and branch events. Wherever I am, it's always a pleasure to be with our members, but little compares to bringing us all together for one occasion. At the rap session, I was struck by the professionalism, attentiveness, and dedication of all our members. The attendees were taking notes, asking questions, and gathering all the information available to take back to their members. Commitment and leadership at the branch level is what makes our union strong, and I appreciate everyone who took the time to attend. The cover story of this month's magazine includes detailed information on the topics covered during the RAP session. There were extensive conversations on collective bargaining, crime issues, our workforce, and more, which you can read about on page four. I also announced some new programs and initiatives that are in the works, and I'd like to use this column to expand on those. First is a new type of virtual training for our activists. We're developing a platform that will offer a series of comprehensive training courses in a virtual format. While this would not replace in-person training, it would expand opportunities for those who want to get involved but might be unable to make it to training in person while providing activists the opportunity to learn and further develop their skills on their own time. This will be an excellent resource, allowing more members to get trained, ultimately continuing to improve representation for our members. Second is an emergency response support program to assist our members who have been affected by a traumatic incident on or off the job. We are all aware that far too many letter carriers have been victims of crime, assault, and other traumatic incidents on the job. Outside of work, some of our members have witnessed mass shootings, natural disasters, and other life-altering events. In March, we will hold our first emergency response support program training for individuals who have been selected to help their brothers and sisters in this program. This training will teach NALC members how to best support other NALC members who have suffered from a traumatic event. Our members are always willing to stand up to help each other, and we believe that there is an opportunity through a program like this to provide much-needed support and assistance for our members in need. I know this for sure. When given the knowledge and opportunity to help their brothers and sisters, they always step up to do so. This is only the first phase of our emergency response support program. In the future, we plan to offer education on and assistance with suicide prevention, substance abuse, and mental health. The goal of the program is not to replace medical or professional help, but to serve as a peer-to-peer -peer support program that can help someone get the initial help they may need. Next is a women's mentoring program. It's undeniable that women who take on or wish to take on a new responsibility or leadership role face different challenges than men. We are putting together a women's mentoring program to help our current and future female leaders. It's important to ensure that we as a union do everything possible to make it easy and accessible for all of our members who want to step up in their branches, 
particularly those who face challenges simply as a result of who they are, as many women do around the country. This program will have experienced mentors who can help other women navigate their roles as NELC leaders. With the support of other women, we hope it will result in more women serving in leadership roles at the branch level and beyond. We are also forming a standing committee on diversity and inclusion. One of our unit's greatest strengths is our diversity. This committee will help us maximize the impact of that strength by embracing and celebrating the diversity of our membership. The main goal of this committee is to improve access and make it as easy as possible for anyone regardless of their race, gender, religion, sexual orientation, or anything else, to get involved and fulfill the mission of our union to fight for city letter carriers. I've never been more excited about the future of NELC. These new programs and initiatives will make our union stronger, allow us to better support our members, and give us leadership nationwide that reflects the diverse union that we are. On page four is, at NELC rap session, President Renfro updates state and branch leaders on contract negotiations, crimes against carriers, heat safety, improving representation, legislation and politics, new initiatives. More than 1,000 letter carrier activists representing branches across the United States gathered in New Orleans to take part in NELC's 2023 National Conference. The NELC Constitution calls for the Union to hold a national conference in non-convention on numbered years, with the date set by the Executive Council. NELC President Brian L. Renfro called the meeting, commonly called a rap session, to order at 8 a.m. on Sunday, November 19th, after a rousing performance by an authentic New Orleans second-line jazz band. Renfro invited Branch 124 member Charlie Bradford to sing the national anthem, Branch 124 member Troy Joseph led the Pledge of Allegiance, followed by Branch 124's Harold John, who delivered the invocation. Renfro then introduced the members of the NELC Executive Council before recognizing former National President Frederick Rolando and other retired national officers, regional administrative assistants, headquarters letter carrier and professional staff, full-time advocates, legislative and political organizers, LPOs, regional grievance assistants, regional office assistants, and regional workers' compensation assistants. The president then thanked the leaders in the room and the members around the country who have reached out to him during his treatment for alcoholism this past spring. It was almost overwhelming the amount of support and encouragement that I received from our members, he said. He encouraged the people in the room who might need help to seek it, or if they knew of someone who needed help, to offer it. I share this for one primary reason. No matter who or where you are or what your responsibilities may be, help is available. If hearing this encourages a single individual to reach out and receive the help they need, it's worth me sharing, he said. Contract Negotiations Renfro then moved on to the topic of contract negotiations. That is always our top priority, he said. It's at the top of mind for me every morning, night and minute in between, He explained that NELC is working on dual tracks, finalizing preparations for interest arbitration even as it continues to engage at the table with the Postal Service for a negotiated agreement. We have been hard at work for some time in preparation for the possibility of us reaching the interest arbitration process, and we are not completely finished with that preparation, but we have a very strong case put together. And should that be where we ultimately end up, we feel very good about the case that we can put on, Renfro said. The president said the parties are in the process of selecting a neutral arbitrator to chair the panel and will schedule hearings date shortly after that. 
We will proceed as if we're going there, but at the same time, we're going to continue to negotiate, he said. I think both sides feel like it is well worth our time and our energy to continue to try to work toward an agreement. Renfro said that while the parties have made progress toward reaching an agreement on the economic terms of a potential agreement, a gap remains between what the Postal Service is willing to pay and what the union believes would constitute a fair agreement that rewards NELC members for their value and contributions to the Postal Service's success. We started with a pretty large gap, he said. We are going to keep working at it, and hopefully we can finally get to the point of agreement. Another topic of negotiation is the status of the non-career workforce. Renfro said that if the non-career workforce does exist in the next contract, it needs to change considerably, particularly in pay. There is a scenario where we could reach a tentative agreement that included the continuance of a non-career workforce in some form if they are willing to pay all letter carriers what we believe we deserve, he said. Of course, there's also a scenario where we reach a tentative agreement that does not include a non-career workforce. If the parties go to arbitration, NELC will present an official economic proposal that the union would support in its interest arbitration case and seek to achieve in the process. And if so, the president outlined what he was fairly certain would be in that proposal. A single pay table, as we just talked about. We would go into the process proposing to eliminate the non-career category. We would propose that our cost of living adjustments be restored to 100%, starting at step A and all the way through the process. And then we would, of course, propose that we receive significant annual general increases. Enough is enough. Renfro then talked about the increase in robberies and assaults targeting letter carriers, which have risen exponentially over the past three years, with more than 2,000 such assaults in that period. Of those, only 14% have resulted in an arrest and federal prosecution. Unfortunately, there is no simple, quick solution to this, he said. This is something that's going to take time, but we are beginning to make progress. The Postal Service has made both public and private commitments to replace all of the arrow locks in the field and has tested a number of electronic solutions to devalue the arrow keys, which have been a primary target of thieves. Renfro said that increasing federal prosecution rates is another important component. The Postal Service is funding about a dozen prosecutors in U.S. attorney's offices to spend a majority of their time prosecuting these crimes. But more is needed, and that is why NELC has been holding Enough is Enough rallies. The rallies boost media awareness of the issue and generate robust news coverage, which in turn prioritizes the issue for residents and U.S. attorneys, thereby helping raise prosecution rates. For more on the rallies, see page 10. In addition to the rallies, NELC has been working with members of Congress on crafting and introducing legislation to help combat the issue. Renfro said that the bill would be NELC's primary legislative priority and that he will call for a day of action to quickly grow the support of co-sponsors and public awareness. For the longest time, most of us in this room carried mail and nobody ever messed with us, he said. There was a thought, if you mess with a letter carrier, that's a federal employee, you're going to jail. We have to make that a reality. That's ultimately what deters these crimes. Heat safety. The president next addressed heat safety, which has resulted in letter carriers' deaths. He said that the Postal Service has acknowledged the widespread problem with getting area and district managers to hold the mandatory heat training. Along those lines, he said, we are going to continue to engage them to ensure this training looks a whole lot different for 2024 by the end of or by April 1st of next year. A major part of the issue is that the United States does not have a heat safety standard for workers. The Biden administration is working on one, which the NLC has vowed to help with. We will continue to use every avenue we possibly can until we get to the point where they have a heat illness prevention program that includes all the elements that are accepted by experts in this field to protect people that are working from the dangers of excessive heat.
he said. Improving representation, the Delivering for America plan. Renfro told attendees how the union is trying to improve representation for the branches, mostly small, that are not fully functioning, not active in representing their members, by working to merge those branches with nearby functional branches that can improve the representation for the members. He said that 113 of these branches have been merged with other branches, resulting in improved representation for those members. On the Postal Service's 10-year plan, the union is remaining engaged with the Postal Service in order to maintain a seat at the table and offer feedback, but also to enforce compliance with the national agreement as more letter carriers start delivering from sorting and delivery setters, S and DCs. He also warned members to not listen to local managers talking about routes that will be moved to a future S and DC. If you're going to be impacted by one of these in any way, you will hear well in advance from your regional office and from us at headquarters to prepare for that, he said. Politics and Legislation President Renfro outlined NELC's legislative and political agenda, starting with the union's efforts to educate the Biden administration on the need for implementation of the Siegel Pension Valuation Method for CSRS. Convincing the White House to issue an executive action to institute the private sector pension valuations would save the Postal Service billions of dollars annually. In Congress, NELC continues to add support for the Social Security Fairness Act, H.R. 82, the bill that would repeal the windfall elimination provision and the government pension offset. Another piece of legislation is the Federal Retirement Fairness Act, H.R. 5995. The bill that would allow former non-career employees, including CCAs, TEs, and casuals, all the way back to December 31, 1988, to make deposit, or buyback, their non-career time and have it credited for retirement. A little-known fact, Renfro said, is that 64% of active letter carriers would be affected by this legislation, which shows why it remains a legislative priority. However, President Renfro said that members needed to be realistic about the chances of passage in Washington. He pointed to the many years it took of building support for postal reform through Congress after Congress so that when a certain election went a certain way, it was possible to finally get the legislation enacted. He thanked the letter carriers in the crowd who wore black t-shirts showing that they had upped their contributions to the Letter Carrier Political Fund, LCPF. He said that while he took pride in the fact that the union had reached the 12% threshold for members giving to NELC's political action committee, he knows that NELC can do better. I just do not believe that 88% of our members have consciously chosen not to participate in the Letter Carrier Political Fund, he said. He said that when members are informed and then asked to join LCPF and the process is made easy, the union sees significant improvement. He said that the LPOs have been making the first part easier, especially when aided by branch leaders. On the second part, problems with postal ease and light blue have made it more difficult, but NELC is working on a solution to make it much quicker and easier. Unfortunately, the president said that there was not time to outline the process for Medicare integration under the Postal Service Reform Act, but that the You Are the Current Resident podcast posted on the same day had many details for members. The podcast is available on NELC.org, Spotify, iTunes, and other places you listen to podcasts. New Initiatives To end the speech portion of the meeting, Renfro outlined four new initiatives NELC is working on. A new online learning program to complement the in-person training that NELC does well on a local, regional, and national level. An emergency response team of letter carriers to help NELC members when they're dealing with trauma, not to serve as counselors, but rather to offer peer-to-peer -peer support in situations like suicide awareness, suicide prevention, mental health issues, or substance abuse. A mentoring program for women in the union.
The idea behind this is to structure a program that for any of our members that face challenges just because of the fact that they are a woman, they have someone they can reach out to to help them navigate that challenge, he said. A standing committee for diversity issues. Everyone in our union deserves and should have the opportunity to learn and to be involved no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, he said. And if we do that, and we make conscious efforts to ensure that as we move forward, we give all those who express interest that opportunity, it will allow us to continue to do something we've done for a long time. But I think even more to the next level of embracing and utilizing the strength that we have through our diversity. He then moved to the wrap portion, taking approximately an hour's worth of questions from the attendees, primarily about issues related to contract negotiations, uniforms, and route adjustments before adjourning the meeting at about 11 a.m. Workshops offer more updates. On Saturday, November 18th, attendees had the opportunity to attend four workshops on a multitude of topics important to letter carriers. The four workshops were Executive Vice President Paul Barner, Vice President James Henry, and Director of City Delivery Chris Jackson, along with assistance to the President for Contract Administration Greg Dixon, Danielle Fake Mormon, and Jasmine Correa, an assistant to the president for city delivery, Stephen Stewart, informed the attendees on national and regional arbitration and Step B updates, dispute resolution training for branch leaders, and city delivery issues. Director of Life Insurance, Jim Yates. Director of Health Benefits, Stephanie Stewart. Director of Retired Members, Dan Toth. And assistant to the president for administration, Chris Henwood, talked about the benefits and offerings of the health and life insurance companies and about issues affecting current and future retirees. Secretary-Treasurer Nicole Ryan, Assistant Secretary-Treasurer Mac Julian, and Director of Safety and Health Manuel L. Peralta, Jr. discussed issues related to branch dues, branch bylaw changes, and the Employee Assistance Program. Special Executive Assistant to the President Tim McKay, Special Assistants to the President Doug Lape and Michelle McQuality, Assistants to the President for Administration Tamara Twin, Mandy Hankins, Ron Osborne, and Ed Morgan, Assistant to the President for Workers' Compensation, Kobe Jones, and Assistant to the President for Legislative and Political Organizing, Brent Fajerestad, provided updates on the new Employee Experience and Retention Program, USPS Vehicles, the Alternate Dispute Resolution Process, Sorting and Delivery Centers, the Technology Integrated Alternate Route Evaluation and Adjustment Process, NELC's Communications Efforts, Research and Resources through NELC's Publication and Website, OWCP, and the Letter Carrier Political Fund. By making a contribution to the Letter Carrier Political Fund, you are doing so voluntarily with the understanding that your contribution is not a condition of membership in the National Association of Letter Carriers or of employment by the Postal Service, nor is it a part of union dues. You have a right to refuse to contribute without any reprisal. Any guideline amounts are merely suggestions, and you may contribute more or less than the guidelines suggest, and the union will not favor or disadvantage you by reason of the amount of your contribution or your decision not to contribute. The Letter Carrier Political Fund will use the money it receives to contribute to candidates for federal office and undertake other political spending as permitted by law. Your selection shall remain in full force and effect until canceled. Contributions to the Letter Care Political Fund are not deductible for federal income tax purposes. Federal law prohibits the Letter Carrier Political Fund from soliciting contributions from individuals who are not NELC members, executive and administrative staff, or their families. Any contribution received from such an individual will be refunded to that contributor. Federal law requires us to use our best efforts to collect and report the name, mailing address, name of employer, and occupation of individuals whose contributions exceed $200 in a calendar year. On page 8 is News from Washington. Ask your representative to co-sponsor the Federal Retirement Fairness Act, 
H.R. 5995. The Federal Retirement Fairness Act, H.R. 5995, was reintroduced in the House by Representatives Derek Kilmore, Democrat, Washington, David Valadao, Republican, California, Don Bacon, Republican, Nebraska, and Jerry Connolly, Democrat, Virginia, on October 19th. The bill would allow certain federal employees, including letter carriers, to make catch-up retirement contributions for time spent as non-career employees after December 31, 1988, making it creditable service under the Federal Employees Retirement System, FERS. H.R. 5995 would cover letter carriers who were employed as casuals, transitional employees, or city carrier assistants, providing them with greater retirement security. Currently, the bill has 29 co-sponsors, 16 Democrats, and 13 Republicans. It is important to build support and momentum for this bill, which would affect more than half of the active letter carriers. All letter carriers are encouraged to visit NALC's Legislative Action Center and ask their representative to co-sponsor H.R. 5995. Visit nalc.org action to contact your representative. Equal COLA Act Introduced in Senate On November 1st, Senator Alex Padilla, Democrat, California, introduced the Equa COLA Act, S-3194. The bill would ensure that cost-of-living adjustments are applied equally to federal retirees. Under current law, there is a discrepancy between COLA increases for Civilian Service Retirement System, CSRS, and Federal Employees Retirement System, FERS, retirees. COLAs for CSRS retirees are determined by the rate of inflation measured by the Consumer Price Index for urban wage earners and clerical workers in the third quarter of a year compared with the third quarter of the previous year. COLA benefits for FERS retirees are based on the same percentage change. However, the increase is limited based on certain criteria. If the CSRS COLA increase is more than 3%, FERS retirees receive 1% less than the full annual COLA. If the CSRS COLA increase is between 2 and 3%, FERS retirees receive a 2% COLA. If the CSRS COLA increase is less than 2%, FERS retirees receive the full annual COLA. For example, earlier this year, the Social Security Administration announced a 3.2% COLA increase for 2024. Therefore, CSRS will receive this 3.2% boost in benefits, while FERS retirees will only receive a 2.2% increase. Senators Ben Cardin, Democrat Maryland, Patty Murray, Democrat Washington, Bernie Sanders, Independent Vermont, Chris Van Hollen, Democrat Maryland, and Elizabeth Warren, Democrat Massachusetts, were all original co-sponsors of S-3194. Representative Jerry Connolly, Democrat Virginia, introduced a House version of the Equal COLA Act, H.R. 866, in February. The House version has 43 co-sponsors, 40 Democrats, and 3 Republicans. All retired letter carriers deserve to receive the same cost-of-living increases, NALC President Brian L. Renfro said. It is time for this disparity to be fixed so that our retired members and all federal retirees receive equal COLA adjustments. Congress funds government through early 2024. Congress again narrowly avoided a potential shutdown last month. 
As Congress neared the November 17th government funding deadline, the House passed a two-tiered stopgap funding bill on November 14th on a 336 to 95 vote. The Senate passed it on November 15th with an 87 to 11 vote, and President Joe Biden signed it into law the following day. The short-term solution funds the government at current levels, avoids a government shutdown, and excludes extreme funding cuts proposed by members of the House Freedom Caucus. The two-tiered or laddered continuing resolution has two deadlines. Funding for military and veteran programs, agriculture and food agencies, and the Departments of Transportation and Housing and Urban Development will expire on January 19, 2024, while the Departments of State, Defense, Commerce, Labor, and Health and Human Services are funded through February 2, 2024. The new stopgap bill was the first major test for the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, Republican Louisiana. House Freedom Caucus members took a hard stance against the bill, with, a 90, with 93% Republicans ultimately voting against it. A bipartisan stopgap agreement to fund the government at the end of September sealed Representative Kevin McCarthy's Republican California fate as House Speaker. After passage of a continuing resolution, Freedom Caucus members voted to oust McCarthy as their leader, triggering a three-week-long search for a new House Speaker, eventually landing Johnson the job. Despite opposition from some Republican members, so far there are no reports of any plans to oust Johnson after this deal. Two House Democrats, Representatives Jake Oceanclaus, Democrat Massachusetts, and Mike Quigley, Democrat Illinois, voted against the measure since it did not include additional aid for Ukraine. With the new deadlines in place, both chambers will continue working on the 12 appropriations bills for 2024. The House has passed seven, while the Senate has passed three. If the chambers cannot come to an agreement by the end of 2024, the 1% spending cuts agreed to in the June debt limit bill are scheduled to begin. There is no clear path for the chambers to reach an agreement on spending levels. Senate appropriations bills follow the spending levels agreed to in the debt limit deal with an additional $14 billion request for emergency funds. On the other side, House funding bills come in below the debt limit deal's spending caps. NALC will continue to monitor the appropriations process and will keep letter carriers informed of any important developments. On page 9 is how to prepare for a successful food drive. Each year, NALC urges branches to register for the Stamp Out Hunger food drive held on the second Saturday in May. Stamp Out Hunger is the largest single-day food drive in the nation. Below, you will find a guide on how to help your branch create a successful food drive, including the newly revamped registration process and website. Work on the food drive must start in advance and must be a priority. The process begins with the branch selecting a food drive coordinator. Once the food drive coordinator has been identified, the branch president should direct the coordinator to our newly designed website at nalc.org community service food drive to complete the branch registration form. The registration forms will be listed by region and should be returned promptly to the designated regional office. The coordinator should complete all fields on the form, including the name, address, and website of the organizations that will receive the branch's donations. Groundwork. Once the branch is registered, the food drive coordinator should explore NALC's newly designed website to order supplies, find information such as the coordinator's manual, or a sample press release, and find the national partners and state and regional coordinators' contact information. 
The food drive coordinator will want to make sure to review the coordinator's manual and then enlist help as the branch will need volunteers. Start by asking the branch members to sign up by placing a sign-up sheet at your monthly branch meeting and on your branch webpage and or social media pages. Be mindful that you can solicit help from other crafts and NALC co-sponsors, such as United Way. Review the coordinator's manual and then create a timeline of duties and the branch's available budget to share with your volunteers so they know what is expected of them. Schedule a meeting with the volunteers to identify skills or useful contacts. Make sure to set realistic expectations, assist with training if needed, provide regular reassurance, and follow up regularly. Building partnerships. Take advantage of local opportunities to solicit donations from businesses. Letter carriers have an advantage as they interact with businesses daily and will have a relationship with the point of contact. In the coordinator's manual, you will find tips and talking points on how to secure local support. Prior to meeting with a potential partner, create a folder and include material that you can leave with the prospective partner, including a letter explaining the cause, what type of donations you are requesting, and how those donations will be used. Create a list of the possible partners and include the date the meeting took place or the date the packet of information was mailed if you were not able to have a meeting so you can follow up. A great resource to use is your local United Way, which may be able to assist when attempting to get sponsors for bags. You will find more information at unitedway.org slash findyourunitedway. Advertising. There are numerous ways your branch can get the word out. One way is by establishing media contacts and asking them to help promote the drive. Also, you can contact your elected officials and ask them to declare the second Saturday in May as Food Drive Day. You will find a sample press release for news and radio stations, along with a sample proclamation for your elected officials in the Food Drive Coordinator's Manual. Other ways include wearing Food Drive t-shirts, putting out lawn signs, hanging posters and flyers inside banks, churches, or grocery stores, providing stand-up talks with carriers to get them excited about the Food Drive, and sharing information on social media. Remember to follow NALC's social media accounts on Facebook at facebook.com slash stampouthunger and on X, formerly known as Twitter, at at stampouthunger for more ideas. Next steps. After the food drive, what's next? The food drive coordinators should be able to visit the NALC website to retrieve the final results form and record the weight, pounds, of the food collected plus the value in food of the money donated. Once the final results have been submitted to the applicable regional office, the coordinator should compile the information that has been collected and provide it to the branch president. The information should include lists of volunteers, vendor and partner contacts, food banks in your area with their contact information, a timeline of events leading up to the food drive, along with notes on what worked and areas to improve. Determine if the current food drive coordinator will continue in that role next year. If not, do you have a replacement? In order for a branch to succeed, leaders must train the next generation. Thank you for continuing the fight to stamp out hunger. On page 10 is Carriers Call for Stricter Prosecutions, More Help from the Community. Letter carriers from several branches around the country are rallying to declare enough is enough and to make sure their local communities know about the surge in robberies and assaults against their postal carriers.
NELC President Brian L. Renfro crisscrossed the country in October and November, speaking at rallies. He told local media in several cities that in 2023, there have been more than 2,000 violent attacks on letter carriers, up from the 700 reported the previous year, and he said more needs to be done in response. Since 2020, only 14% of these crimes have had both an arrest and a prosecution, Renfro said. NELC is calling for a more aggressive approach, including that these crimes against federal employees be prosecuted at the federal level. The prosecutions that have occurred have often been at the local level, where penalties are not as severe as those available to federal prosecutors. It takes a joint investigation among the Postal Inspection Service, the U.S. Attorney General's Office, and a local police force to hand the case to federal prosecutors. That, combined with the low number of such cases being prosecuted in the first place, reduces the deterrence to potential lawbreakers who aim to attack letter carriers. When these crimes are not prosecuted, it sends a message to criminals that they can get away with robbing a letter carrier, President Renfro said. I am furious that our members continue to be targeted and harmed with no end in sight, he added. I've said many times that there is no single solution to this disturbing problem, but more can be and must be done, and it must be done immediately. He explained that while carriers often notice matters in the neighborhood that need to be addressed, such as mail piling up, the signs of a fire, a missing child, for example, now carriers need the help of residents. We're simply asking all of you to look out for us the way we have looked out for you, Renfro said at a rally in Detroit on November 6. We should not have to be here today. This has to stop. On October 24th, Denver, Colorado Branch 47 held a rally in nearby Aurora, where a Colorado State Association president, Rick Byrne, told attendees, We've had an increase in robberies and assaults on letter carriers in Denver of nearly 300%. He told of two letter carriers he knew who quit after being assaulted. It was just too much for them to take, to have to come back and look over their shoulder all the time, he said. Several carriers are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. It used to be that no one messed with the mail carrier, he said. It seems like the tide is turning. Burns said that he was hopeful postal management and postal inspectors would do more. They are communicating, but we need more awareness and possibly legislation to protect carriers across the country. It affects everybody. The next day, Houston, Texas, Branch 283, held a rally at the North Shepherd Post Office. The number of incidents is up in Houston as well, where there have been at least 25 robberies targeting carriers in the last year. That's just since January, Region 10 National Business Agent Sean Boyd told the attendees. Those numbers are numbers we haven't seen before, and we've been carrying mail for over 100 years. To put a face to the numbers, Branch 283 carrier Ulysses Wells told of an incident that happened to him in 2022. While putting mail in the boxes of a subdivision, three men got out of a car, assaulted him, and stole his arrow key and personal belongings. He still thinks about it. When I'm at work, I'm just nervous, he said. I'm just praying for the safety of my coworkers. I try to look out for them. They try to look out for me. This is terrible. This is scary. This is frightening, he said. We need protection, and we need protection now. President Renfro then returned to the area where Greater East Bay, California Branch 1111 had previously held a rally on October 12th, see the November issue of the Postal Record. On November 3rd, San Francisco Branch 214 gathered to draw attention to the crime in its city across the bay. We chose this location because in the past month, we had 11 robberies here in San Francisco, Branch 214 President Karen Eshabar said. Seven of those were from this unit. It's heart-wrenching. Our poor carriers are being terrorized. Renfro explained that as more Americans receive goods shipped through the mail, the profile of letter carriers becomes larger. 
People know we're carrying more packages than we normally do, so it just stands to reason that we could become larger targets, he said. That's most definitely a concern. At the November 6th rally in Detroit, Branch 1 President Sandy Lamel told attendees that local incidents have been happening almost weekly, and she called on the community to keep watch. They can be the eyes and ears, she said. You usually know when your mail is coming. You usually see your letter carrier's vehicle. You usually know where they park. Be observant of what is going on around us. If you see something that looks totally out of the ordinary, pick up the phone and call 911. Branch 1 member Matt McBee spoke about a day in July as he stood at the mailboxes of an apartment complex. He felt a gun barrel pressed against his head. Two teens in masks and hoodies stole the letters he had and his arrow key. McBee took time off from work but continues to have flashbacks. I have to live with that. It's very hard, he said. It's the day I almost didn't come home. Worcester Wayne County, Michigan branch 2184's Trang Doe had been on the job for only nine months when she was robbed. I never thought it would happen to me, and I couldn't breathe when I think about it, she said. Lamel told the crowd of carriers, co-workers, and the media, we want to go home in the same condition we got here. NELC is leading the call for strong action to stop the trend, with the four rallies mentioned in this article following the initial four in Chicago, Cincinnati, Compton, and Oakland. The rallies, President Renfro said, aim to bring attention to these violent attacks against our members. That's why we're sending a very clear message. This violence against our members has to stop. He continued, every employer has a duty and obligation to protect its employees on the job. The Postal Inspection Service is not protecting us and the U.S. Department of Justice is not doing its job prosecuting these crimes. Postal inspectors and postal police officers work diligently to investigate and prevent instances of violence against our employees, he said, and added, and yet current methods of prevention clearly are not working. The situation is worsening. Renfro called on the inspection service's leaders to do more. Times have drastically changed, and methods for protecting our members while we do our job must reflect the current circumstances. President Renfro said that in addition to more frequent and stronger prosecutions, NELC would also like to see newer technological versions of the arrow keys that criminals are after. A big part of the solution is to devalue that key, potentially using a technology solution so that if they did get their hands on it, it wouldn't be nearly as valuable and wouldn't give them the access that they currently have, he said. The rallies are part of NELC's effort to get out a multifaceted message to the Postal Service to better protect letter carriers on their routes, to locally-based federal prosecutors to take these cases and apply the more harsh federal penalties that local prosecutors do not have available, to residents to alert authorities if they see anything worrisome and to preserve evidence such as doorbell or other surveillance videos for use by investigators, and to their elected representatives to be aware of the need for solutions. Another way NALC is getting the message out is through reports by regional TV broadcasts, radio shows, newspapers, and online news outlets about the surge in violence nationwide. Having the letter carrier perspective as a central element in these media reports increases community awareness of the issue and helps strengthen NALC's push for solutions. That is especially so because of the widespread public support for letter carriers, who in poll after poll have for years topped the list of the most trusted and highly regarded federal employees. President Renfro called on local branches to hold rallies such as the ones that have already been held. Branch leaders are encouraged to contact their national business agents' offices for information and material to help organize a rally or for help contacting the media to amplify our message to their communities. Events like these make a difference and bring awareness to this growing problem, he said. 
I encourage all NELC branches, especially in areas that are experiencing an uptick in crime, to mobilize and plan similar events. When we all come out with a unified message, we are heard. Hi, this is Michelle McQuality, Special Assistant to the President, and I'll be reading Personal Conduct, Social Media, and the Postal Service, found on page 13 of the December Postal Record. The Postal Service and NALC have a long history of earning high levels of public respect and trust. City letter carriers take pride in this history and always strive to present a positive image to the community. Acknowledging this tradition of respect, the Postal Service has certain expectations for the conduct of letter carriers. If you are new to USPS and NALC, these expectations may be unfamiliar to you. This article will briefly describe these expectations and summarize how they relate to employees' use of social media. Section 665.16 of the Employee and Labor Relations Manual, ELM, outlines the overall expectations regarding conduct in and out of the workplace. 665.16, Behavior and Personal Habits. Employees are expected to conduct themselves during and outside of working hours in a manner that reflects favorably upon the Postal Service. Although it is not the policy of the Postal Service to interfere with the private lives of employees, it does require that postal employees be honest, reliable, trustworthy, courteous, and of good character and reputation. The federal standards of ethical conduct referenced in 662.1 also contain regulations governing the off-duty behavior of postal employees. Employees must not engage in criminal, dishonest, notoriously disgraceful, immoral, or other conduct prejudicial to the Postal Service. Conviction for a violation of any criminal statute may be grounds for disciplinary action against an employee, including removal of the employee, in addition to any other penalty imposed pursuant to statute. Chapter 1, Section 112 of the Handbook M41, City Delivery Carriers' Duties and Responsibilities, reads in part 112.52, Conduct affairs of personal life in a way that will reflect creditably on both you and the Postal Service. Keep the ELM and M41 guidelines above in mind when interacting with the public or using social media. The official Postal Service social media policy is contained in Section 363 of the Administrative Support Manual, ASM. The USPS social media policy mainly addresses the conduct of employees who use social media in their official capacity to communicate with the public or other employees. To review ASM Section 363, visit NALC.org and choose the Workplace Issues slash Resources slash USPS Handbooks and Manuals tab to view the complete ASM. While the ASM guidelines do not limit an employee's participation in union social media activity, there are specific rules contained in the Hatch Act that apply to union political activity and social media. For more information on the do's and don'ts related to the Hatch Act and social media, visit the Government Affairs Political tabs on the NALC website at NALC.org. Recently, the Postal Service has issued reminders to employees about these expectations and specifically employees' behavior when interacting and posting on social media. A USPS retail and delivery stand-up talk issued in October reminds employees of the ASM rule prohibiting them from speaking on behalf of the organization on websites, blogs, and social media without permission. 
Postal employees must receive written permission from the Postal Service social media team and the appropriate vice president before establishing any online accounts that represent the Postal Service. USPS does not intend to have this policy infringe on employees' ability to have their own social media presence or personal accounts. However, be cautious when making posts related to your job with USPS. The stand-up talk also reminds employees that they should not post while on the clock. This includes selfies in the plant, post office, vehicle, or other official workplace areas. While social media videos and reels of letter carriers performing their duties and interacting with customers can often be entertaining and heartwarming, be aware that these may not be favorably received by the Postal Service. You have the right to use personal social media outside of work hours at your discretion. However, be careful. Comments or videos you make on social media may be misinterpreted by customers, coworkers, or management, which could create difficulties in the workplace. The ASM reminds employees to always be respectful, whether in the actual or virtual world. The Postal Service Standard of Conduct states, employees are expected to maintain harmonious working relationships and not to do anything that would contribute to an unpleasant working environment. ASM Section 363B advises employees to not verbally attack other individuals or companies. This includes fellow employees, contractors, customers, vendors, and competitors. Remember that anything you post might be visible to anyone, including postal managers and the public, and could be there forever. Be mindful of your personal conduct and what you are posting on social media. You never know who could be watching. On page 14 is, Workers Are Trying to Make Amazon Pay. Amazon, the giant online retailer company, is global, and so is the labor movement's fight against it. Union representatives, Amazon workers, activists, and advocacy groups gathered at the Summit to Make Amazon Pay in Manchester, England, at the end of October to strategize about how to make the company pay its fair share to its workers, as well as to the communities and governments where it operates. NALC joined the meetings as part of the UNI Global Union's Amazon Alliance. Assistant to the President for Administrative Affairs, Chris Henwood, and Director of Research, Holly Feldman-Winnick, represented NALC. The Amazon Alliance is a group of service unions from around the world that are affiliated with UNI, and that have an interest in how the retailer is shaping and affecting their industries. The Alliance brings together unions from a variety of sectors to share information, discuss organizing strategies and legislative opportunities, and provide support and solidarity to Amazon workers. UNI formed the Alliance about a decade ago, and NALC joined in 2019 when it became clear that Amazon was aggressively entering the delivery industry. The alliance, which meets about twice a year, includes labor unions from Germany, Spain, Poland, Italy, France, the United Kingdom, South Africa, and the United States. The October meeting, for the first time, also included unions from New Zealand and India, reflecting Amazon's expanding global presence. The summit featured panels of experts who discussed the ways Amazon uses its size and power to influence markets and governments to increase its profits as well as how to limit this influence. Amazon's tax avoidance strategy means that it rarely contributes to the communities where it places its facilities, even as it has cornered the market on state and local government supply procurement, further increasing its profits. 
often the solution must come from legislative and regulatory reform. While the U.S. Federal Trade Commission's antitrust case against Amazon filed in September could lead to reforms that limit this power, other countries provide instructional examples of laws and regulatory structures that could be used in the United States. India recently passed a law aimed at Amazon that limits it to acting only as a marketplace for other retailers to sell their goods, meaning Amazon cannot sell Amazon-branded products on the website, which has restricted its ability to profit there. The summit also discussed on-the-ground organizing efforts with some wins and losses for labor unions. Amazon warehouse workers and delivery drivers shared their experiences working for the company, highlighting the high injury rate, extreme speed of work, and low pay, along with the fierce anti-union tactics Amazon uses to prevent workers from organizing. While there have been only two successful attempts so far to form a union among Amazon workers in the United States, experiences from other countries are informative. Labor laws and industry structures in European countries, particularly Germany, Italy, and Belgium, have forced Amazon to follow certain pay rates and sectoral rules. However, even when there are stricter laws in place, Amazon refuses to bargain or cooperate in good faith. A highlight of the summit for the NALC contingent was meeting and learning from Jesse Moreno, a delivery driver employed by a small delivery company that works exclusively for Amazon and that recently unionized and joined the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Rather than employing its own delivery drivers, Amazon contracts with small delivery companies called Delivery Service Partners, DSPs, which employ the drivers. However, Amazon still controls every element of these drivers' jobs. This employment structure, which is a form of employee misclassification, allows Amazon to hire and fire DSPs as it wants. This model is intentional so that Amazon can ruthlessly quash unionization efforts. Jesse and his co-workers who deliver in Palmdale, California, were worried about working in the desert heat, and they also protested their low pay. Their DSP owner understood their concerns and voluntarily recognized their union earlier this year. Amazon refused to engage and fired the entire DSP after the successful union vote, but that has not deterred the drivers. The workers in Palmdale have been on strike since the Amazon firing. One day longer, one day stronger, Jesse said as the strike went into its 125th day. Finally, unions and activists shared and strategized over what collective actions against Amazon could be taken on the then upcoming Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving in the United States, and the busiest shopping day of the year. Unions across the world planned strikes, walkouts, protests, and media outreach, all aimed at building worker power, sharing their struggles with the public, and getting Amazon's attention. Unlike the first alliance meeting that NALC staff attended in 2019, where little progress had been made in organizing and addressing Amazon's immense power, this meeting showed how much work has been done in the few years since. In addition to some small yet significant organizing wins, the largest change has been in how the public narrative has shifted against the company. Media coverage and the public are gaining an understanding of the many exploitative and predatory tactics of the company. This isn't thanks in large part to the many unions, community groups, and advocacy organizations that have come together to shed light on Amazon's poor labor and business practices. There remains, however, much more to do. Manchester was a particularly appropriate place to hold such a meeting. The city, which was a small town for much of its history, expanded quickly at the turn of the 19th century, 
when it became one of the centers of textile manufacturing during the Industrial Revolution. While the Industrial Revolution brought wealth to the city, many workers suffered from meager pay and poor working conditions and lived in substandard housing in a city covered with smoke from factories. But workers fought to improve their lives, organizing to earn better working conditions as well as the right to vote. The city takes pride in its strong labor history. Like Manchester once was, Amazon is a center of capitalism today. It is heartening to be reminded that workers have organized to overcome industrial power and greed in the past. With all of our help, Amazon workers will try to do it again and make Amazon pay its fair share. Penalty Overtime Exclusion Set As referenced in Article 8, Sections 4 and 5 of the USPS-NALC National Agreement, the the December period during which penalty overtime regulations are not applicable consists of four consecutive service weeks. This year, the December period begins pay period 26-23, week 1, December 2, 2023, and ends pay period 01-24, week 2, December 29, 2023. NALC documentary shown at FilmFest. On October 28th, NALC's documentary, The Revolt of the Good Guys, was screened at the Workers Unite Film Festival, WUFF, at Cinema Village Theater in New York City. The film details the buildup and explosion of the 1970 Great Postal Strike, as well as the roles of NALC President James Raidmacher and the Wildcat Strikes leader Vincent Sombrato. WUFF is New York's only labor film festival and is in its 12th season. It aims to feature student and professional films from the United States and around the world that highlight the struggles, successes, and daily lives of all workers in their efforts to unite and organize for better living conditions and social justice. In addition to members of the general public, the audience for the film included New York Branch 36 members and 1970 strikers Jose Ramos, Harold Hillard, and Eugene Spry. The film's narrator, and also a striker, Wally Padulo of Jersey City, New Jersey, Branch 42, and six members of the Sombrato family. If you have a story to share with us, please contact the Postal Record by phone at 202-662-2851, by email at postalrecord at nalc.org, or by letter at 100 Indiana Avenue, Northwest, Washington, D.C., 20001. On page 16 is A Season for Giving. While letter carriers give of themselves year-round, there is something about the holiday season that brings out the better angels of their nature. In this issue of the Postal Record, we bring you some of the special moments this time of year delivers and some of the ways letter carriers keep the joy alive. However they spread happiness, letter carriers give of themselves and receive rewards even greater than what they give. Carrier answers Santa letter, asking for help from bullying. Brittany Giles was leaving work one day in December last year when she saw her manager doing something different. My boss was making these super cute envelopes and stuffing them with a bunch of stuff, the Port St. Lucie, Florida letter carrier said. They were responses from kids' letters to Santa. They were really cute letters she typed up, acknowledging that these kids wrote to Santa and she put in colored pencils, crayons, coloring books, candy canes, whatever. Giles, a six-year letter carrier with West Palm Beach Branch 1690, immediately asked her manager if there were more. I saw the bag and started reading them, and a lot of them broke my heart. 
There were lots of super sad letters, she said, but one stood out. Cameron King, then 10 years old, asked Santa for some toys and to have his family come together and to have fun and to not get bullied. Giles knew that she had to get involved. When I read that, you know, I'm a mom. I have two little kids. I'm super big on family. I have always taught my children to be as nice as possible to everyone, especially the struggling children at school that are being picked on. Those are the ones you want to go make friends with, right? She said. This was almost a year ago now, and I can still tell you exactly what the letter said because it stuck with me so much, because his letter was about how he wanted his family. He didn't want to be bullied. I mean, it broke my heart. Giles left her post office that evening and went to the return address on the Santa letter, the residence of Cameron's grandparents, who looked at this uniform letter carrier like she was strange. After explaining that she had received Cameron's letter and wanted to know what toys he would like, he hadn't included anything specific on his letter, the grandfather began crying. You have no idea how much this means to me, he told her. He also called Cameron's mother, Amy, who brought the boy to meet Giles. He normally goes to grandma and grandpa's house after school, and then he had his cousin help him write the letter, Amy King told WPTV, the West Palm Beach NBC affiliate. Cameron was born without his left hand and has a muscle nerve disorder. It's called Charcot-Marie Tooth Disease, so that affects his nerves and muscles in his legs and arms. So as he gets older, it kind of deteriorates. They said he wouldn't be able to walk, but he's walking, running, playing soccer. I'm very proud of him. I always say he's my little miracle baby, King added. When Giles, a cancer survivor who was told incorrectly that she would never have children, met Cameron, she told him, I work for Santa and I read your letter, but you didn't say what type of toys you want. So he sent me down here to get a list and bring it back to him. The boy's face lit up and he gave her a list of gifts for him and his family. Giles wrote down his ideas, but she left with a few more that hadn't made it onto the list. She reached out to the St. Lucie County Sheriff's Office deputies, Ethan Kirk and Rebecca Ireland. They all pooled their money to buy the gifts on the list. They all pooled their own money to buy the gifts on the list. And Deputy Kirk told WPTV that he asked Cameron if there's anything I can do for him, whether it's go to school, talk with a school resource deputy, and just try to figure out a plan and try to get this stopped. The police ultimately held an anti-bullying assembly at Cameron's school and spoke to every kid there. After local news covered the story, it began to take on a life of its own. The national organization Bikers Against Bullying contacted Giles and wanted to do something. They rented out a Chuck E. Cheese restaurant and arcade and hosted a party for Cameron and his family. Just as he had asked in the letter, he got to come together with his family and have some fun. It was a great thing to see how many people truly cared and wanted to get involved and be part of this, Giles said. She encourages everyone to help in their community. I'm sure every community or city has a mayor, and if you don't have anything that your office is a part of, you can always go through that way and try to get involved with your city. But especially after COVID, things are rough for a lot of people right now, she said. As for Cameron, the carrier is still part of his life, seeing him and his family regularly. This is my extended family at this point, she said. Community is everything. Family is everything. And it doesn't have to be by blood. Cameron is not going to live a long life, Giles explained. As he gets older, his body will start shutting down. He does not retain information. He does not remember a lot of things. But the fact that I could give that kid a Merry Christmas, even if it only lasted in his mind for a few moments, was worth it. Michigan Branch adopts two schools for the holidays. 
for Jackson, Michigan, Branch 232. After a long spell of letting holiday giving go by the wayside, the branch ended up giving gifts last year to not only one entire school, but two. Though the branch had been involved in charitable endeavors in the past holiday seasons, such as in 2007 when it put a new roof on the house of a father serving abroad in the military, changes in management, compl- changes in management complicated things. We have had a revolving door of postmasters, and they didn't want us doing stuff like this, Branch 232 President Deborah Marriott said. Only CFC. But with a new postmaster more accepting of it, the branch decided to get back to giving in 2021. The branch members brought it up at a union meeting and felt the time was right, especially after COVID and so many people lost their jobs, Marriott said. Jackson has a lot of families at the poverty level and below. When the decision to do something for a family was made by the branch, one of the members said that on their route, they had a family with eight foster children who had just moved into the area. The branch voted and decided to adopt the family for the holidays. We raised over $5,000, Marriott said. We got them all toys, clothes, brand new pillows, bedding, blankets. We got them pajamas to put on for New Year's Eve and toothbrushes. Everything was themed for the child. So if they like basketball, they got basketball betting. Carrier Mark Wachowski dressed up as Santa Claus and he received a ride on the back of the local APWU president's motorcycle with a police escort. Just seeing the kids light up as we're bringing in bags and bags and bags and bags of gifts and stuff was heartwarming, Marriott said. They were jumping up and down and screaming. It was such a success that for 2022, the branch decided that if helping eight kids felt that good, What if they helped a whole school full of them? When the president of the local APWU heard what we were doing, he was like, hey, let's band together and let's do two, she said. The schools were two separate elementary schools in underprivileged areas with 900 children in total. We contacted both the principals to make sure they were down with it, Marriott said. They were told, yeah, most of the kids here, they're on the free lunch program. They come to school in the same clothes every day. They have very little. And we were like, we're on it, she said. The branch started raising money in September, doing 50-50 raffles twice a week. It also set up a pumpkin mail hamper for toy donations. And both NALC and APWU members donated money. Then it was time to do the shopping. The APWU members did the shopping with the money they raised, while Marriott went to JCPenney and Kohl's department stores, as well as ordering from Amazon with her branch's donations. I would come home from work and there would be a wall in front of my back door with boxes from Amazon, Marriott said. For over a month, my house from one end to the other, almost to the ceiling, was nothing but boxes. As it came in, I had to categorize what I had by age group, boy or girl, so we had everyone covered. Marriott admitted that she had nightmares leading up to the event. We're not going to have enough gifts. When the time arrived, the postmaster donated a two-ton truck and NALC and APWU members separated all the toys so that they had enough for both schools, delivering to one a week after the other. After work, on the night before the first school event, they set the toys up on a U-shape of tables and covered them with tablecloths. The next day, Rachowski dressed up as Santa Claus again, while one of the clerks dressed up as an elf to help the kids celebrate. As the kids saw Santa and got to pick a gift, they also received a cocoa packet and candy cane donated by the branch and a coloring book and crayons donated by the postmaster. Some of the rural letter carriers from the office joined in on their day off for the celebration too. We had so many basketballs, the clerk actually pushed a pumpkin of basketballs out 
and started throwing it into the bleachers and the kids were just roaring, she said. Not only did they have enough, we actually ended up having more than enough gifts. So not only did we do the two schools, we also donated boxes of toys to our homeless shelter and also to a woman called Miss Wanda who donates to the underprivileged all year round, Marriott said. The kids at both schools thanked the letter carriers and clerks, and afterwards they received thank you cards. It was just so heart-wrenching, she said, quoting the messages. I got exactly what I got exactly what I wanted, one said. Santa, thank you so much, another said. This year, the branches decided to go back to adopting a single family. We want to buy, of course, toys and clothes for all the kids, and we want to get food for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, she said. And we're hoping to raise enough money to get a money order for Consumers Power and help that family with their electric bill for that month, too. Marriott encourages other branches that want to give back to start local. Ask people in your branch, she said. Hey, does anyone on their route have a family that really needs help? That's how we got the one family, because we see it every day. We see them in the summertime, or we see them getting home from school, wearing the same clothes all the time, with not many toys. And that's who we want to touch. I look at it this way, she said. Every child that we touched at that elementary school is going to remember that. And hopefully one day they're in a position to pay it forward and help. Carrier battles cancer while rocking for Christmas cheer. Music has always been part of Harry Bittner's life. He grew up listening to Motown records around the house that his parents played and then got exposed to rock and roll music through neighborhood kids. He picked up a bass guitar when he was 15 and has loved playing ever since. I got started just because a friend of mine was kind of dabbling with the guitar, he said. His older brother was in a band and we would sneak down and play their instruments when they weren't around. Fast forward to 2019 when the Camden, New Jersey Branch 540 member joined a five-member cover band called Unglued. They practice once a week, usually perform two shows a month at bars or other events like festivals, and the bandmates work together to choose songs to cover. They jokingly call me Heavy Metal Harry because my background before doing this cover band was doing heavy metal stuff, so I like harder stuff, Bittner said, and added that his biggest musical inspiration is Iron Maiden bass player Steve Harris. But we tend to try and pick songs that we know will go over with the crowd, he said. We're more inclined to do Michael Jackson and Prince. We don't do Metallica and Megadeth, you know what I mean? The Carrier was enjoying playing guitar gigs with the band when unglued singer Wally approached them in the fall of 2020 and told them about his longtime desire to do a traveling Christmas show by driving around a truck to a few locations, and the band would then play some Christmas carols on the back to spread some cheer. I immediately said, yeah, I'm in, Bittner said. However, that winter of 2020, COVID-19 was spreading and events were shutting down. They began to fear that they'd get in trouble for gathering, so Bittner suggested that maybe they raise some money to help out people who need it while they play, in case they were questioned by the police. Then, fortuitously, an acquaintance of the carrier heard about their plans and asked if she could put them in touch with a friend of hers who is a retired prosecutor who works with a charity and who could help the band find families who could be helped through the money collected. And boy, did she ever, Bittner said. I mean, you hear these nightmare, horrible stories about everything from people that had lost their jobs and just were hurting for money with little kids to a woman that was a victim of domestic violence and kind of out on her own. Plans soon came together, and the band began scouting locations and practicing songs. Wally spent a few weeks preparing the 20-foot utility trailer and attaching the drum set to it so they could travel with it. We would tow this huge trailer, decked out in lights and with a tree on it, to a couple of different neighborhoods where we knew it wouldn't be an issue, Bittner said. 
And then we went to a school that was closed at night, so we'd have this big, giant, open lot. We went to another community down the road where there was a VFW, Veterans of Foreign Wars. This first year, they played four stops. Bittner's friend, Joe Popow, whom he called the most authentic Santa you've ever seen in your life, accompanied them. He also recruited his youngest of two daughters, Alyssa, who dressed as an elf and handed out candy canes to children and walked around with a bucket to collect money from concert goers. People in the local communities, including some of his co-workers, bring their kids, kids go see Santa, Bittner said. They listen to us, give us a couple bucks, and we would get it to the right people when this was all over. Within a week or so, the band and Santa visited the houses of the selected families and dispersed gift cards and presents. It kind of grew into this thing where we'd be able to get information on the families, like how many kids, what are their ages, what are their sizes, he said, adding that the bandmate spouses shop for the kids' clothes and toys, and then they'd all wrap the items. It was a huge success, Bittner said, of the 2020 endeavor, so much so that we had every intention of doing it every year. They had just set out preparing for the 2021 show that October when Bittner went in for routine blood work. Next thing you know, I'm casing mail in the morning. I get a phone call from the nurse and she says, your liver enzymes are through the roof and we've got to figure out why, the 29-year letter carrier said. And that just kind of set off this chain of events where I had to get all of these different tests. It was an ultrasound and then an MRI and I find out that I have this tumor and they thought I had bile duct cancer initially and it's like a death sentence, he continued, adding that after undergoing a colonoscopy, he was eventually correctly diagnosed with stage four colorectal cancer. I'm reading and I'm thinking, oh my God, how did I go from a from perfectly healthy a month ago to man, I might have three or five years. You know, that all starts setting in. His eldest daughter, Haley, was getting married that December, and Bittner was convinced by a friend to get his minister's license to officiate the ceremony, so he did. She'll always have this to remember, that her dad married her, he said. Around the same time, we're doing year two of the Christmas gig, and it's just under this shroud of uncertainty and fear, and what's going to happen next? I know that chemo is coming, and I just kept thinking, boy, I hope it doesn't start until after the Christmas gig, he added. I didn't want to let my bandmates down. I didn't want to let the people down that were going to be on the receiving end of these gifts. Fortunately, he was able to fully participate in the annual festivities. It was an even bigger success than the first year. More people turned out, more money was raised, more families were helped, Bittner said. They started to mix up the format, adding in some regular rock music too. They continued to collect cash, sometimes gift cards, and also PayPal donations at each stop. After receiving help from the retired prosecutor the first year with selecting families, the band was able to start finding them on their own. People started hearing we were doing this, and we'd have people come to us and say, Hey man, I know this family, and they just had a house fire and lost everything. Can you help them out? He said. We'll check into it and be like, okay, this is legit. Let's help these people out. One of his favorite memories from the endeavor was when he and the band played a gig in the fall, and he saw a man he recognized but couldn't place. In between sets, the man approached the band and said they had helped him and his family out the first year when they were in a tough spot. He had then gotten a new job and was doing better, so he wanted to offer a donation for another family in need. That was really cool because that was like, we've made a difference in these people's lives and now they're appreciative and they're here to support us as a band. But more importantly, they're here to pay it forward and give it to somebody else who's down on their luck. Bittner began chemotherapy in January 2022 
and tried working his postal job through his treatment to keep a sense of normalcy, but he ended up taking off some time here and there for treatments, which included eight chemo infusions, followed by five radiation treatments, and then a major surgery in which surgeons removed 60% of his liver and a section of his colon. In addition, I had my gallbladder removed, hernia repaired, and I ended up with an ileostomy bag for nine weeks, he said. They sent me for a scan in December of last year, and they found a tiny little piece of cancer in my common bile duct, he continued. And there again, the first thing I'm thinking is, I don't know when surgery is going to be, but I hope I can get this Christmas gig in. And I find out the surgery is going to be February. We did a Christmas show number three last December, and again, bigger, better, more money, more families. Being involved with music is both fun and rewarding, Bittner said. Playing in the band has been so invaluable to me during my cancer journey because every minute I spend learning a song, playing a song, playing out, it's another minute that I'm not thinking about cancer, he said, adding, and that was really crucial, I think, for me to maintain a good attitude and press forward. As this issue of the Postal Record was going to press, the carrier and his bandmates were winding down the last of their regular gigs for the year and gearing up for the fourth annual charity show on December 9th. I'm sure it'll be bigger and better than it's been the last couple years. It just keeps growing, he said. I think as long as the five of us are together as a band, that we'll continue to do it. Bittner said of their fundraising, you just do it because it's the right thing to do. While it's been a rough two years for my family, there's people out there who have it worse. This year, they plan to help multiple people yet again, including a family they've met who lost everything in a house fire, even their dogs. When you're in a cover band and you're not looking to be famous or anything, he said, at the end of the day, you're just doing it because it's fun and it's a cool night out. You hope that people dig it. And in our case, with Unglued, you hope that you're building up this fan base that will also contribute to the Christmas thing at the end of the year. And they do. The reason why we've collected $13,000 in three years is because we have people that come see us at those other shows. As for himself, things are looking up. There's no sign of cancer right now, Bittner said, and he added, I'm one of the lucky ones. It's not lost on me that so many people don't come out the other side from this. I feel very blessed. Haley, whose wedding Bittner presided over, is expecting a baby girl in January, and the carrier and his wife, Joan, are looking forward to being grandparents. Indeed, he's thought of his legacy. I want my kids and my grandkids eventually to have something to remember, that even when I was low as low could be in the worst possible shape anybody could be in, I still was committed to getting out and doing this Christmas gig, he said. And I want people to go, hey, you know what? This dude, he wasn't feeling great and he looked like hell, but he bundled up and put hand warmers in his pocket and jumped on a trailer to play Christmas carols and help out other people that weren't doing so good, he added. That's what it's about for me. That's why I do it. For more information, visit facebook.com slash unglued band. The Better Angels Keep Giving Back in New York. New York, New York Branch 36 carrier Ernest Twomley's chance encounter with a child on his route a decade ago led him to organize toy drives for needy children every Christmas. Seeing a mother he knew from his route emerging from a taxi with her three children, he noticed that one of the children, a little girl, was in distress. She's screaming in the middle of the street, he recalled. I went over to see what the issue was because I have three kids myself. He offered to help by delivering the little girl to her home. I said, have you ever been delivered to your apartment by a mailman? And she just looked at me and started laughing. So I picked her up, carried a couple of flights of stairs, put her on a couch, and that was it. But then a neighbor who saw what he did told him the significance of his kind act. 
One of the neighbors said, that was a real nice thing you did. I said, what? Stop a little girl from crying? The neighbor told Twomley that the little girl had a brain tumor and was returning from New York's Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center after a round of treatment. Wanting to do something more for the family, the next time he saw the mother while out on his route, he asked her for letters to Santa Claus from the children. Then he asked some fellow letter carriers to help fulfill the wish list, and everyone pitched in. So picture a grown man going into the American Girl doll store and picking out the stuff she wanted, Twomley said. Twomley and some other carriers invited the family to get the presents under the Christmas tree in the lobby of his station in Manhattan. Somehow, a local TV news station heard about it, and when the story aired, an idea was born. The newscaster called us the Better Angels. That inspired Twomley and fellow Branch 36 members David Correa and Heriberto Rodriguez, along with postal employee Don Daggett, to form a nonprofit group called the Better Angels of Human Nature to bring the spirit of that first generous toy drive to many more children. Postal employees at several stations in New York donate toys each year for the effort, each filling up a postal container with toys. Of course, Christmas wouldn't be Christmas without Santa Claus. A few years ago, after spotting fellow Branch 36 carrier Daniel Weber growing a beard, Twomley hatched a plan, asking Weber to let it grow out until Christmas. So he's our official Santa Claus each year, Twomley said. The group's outreach has expanded far beyond that first family by serving children with disabilities in schools and needy children in women's shelters. Last Christmas, the Better Angels provided gifts for 290 children at the New Hope Transitional Housing Family Shelter in the Bronx and for 153 kids at PS 186X Walter Damrosch School, a Bronx special education school. This year, they are busy collecting even more toys for PS 186X. We have 800 kids with disabilities in the school. We're going to fill the gymnasium up with toys and everything else for them. What we usually do is get the toys and put them in a room. The kids come in, they pick whatever they want. Despite serving so many children, the better angels always seem to have extra gifts for others who reach out for help because they lean on the community to donate along with postal employees. Right now, I have about 300 toys in my secret toy closet in the post office, Twomley said. The carriers ask some of these high-rise buildings, we're in Midtown, to put out a toy box. The whole neighborhood knows us already, so we put the collection boxes in there. The Better Angels piggyback on the postal network to retrieve the toys. We have relay drivers. They have to bring relays out there. So every time they go to the building, they check the box to see if it's full, and they bring them back. That's how simple it is. Several other stations in the area now help to collect toys from donation boxes. And management is 100% behind me with this, he added. Even our area manager is getting involved with me as well because he has a friend in the New York Police Department. And we just made an announcement that we're going to be joining forces with them as well. Like the system itself, Twomley's slogan for the operation is simple. Everyone gets a toy. Twomley said the satisfaction of seeing the joy his work brings children is its own reward. He still remembers a mother who called and pleaded with him to keep a toy giveaway at the shelter open late one day because she was late bringing her daughter. She comes in and she's out of breath, he said. The woman was parked in the street because she couldn't find parking, so someone went to watch her car and others brought her daughter, Mia, who used a wheelchair, inside. Her face lit up because we left all the toys that we were going to leave for them anyway in that room. And I said, Mia, just pick anything that you want. It's yours, he said. Her mother started crying, and for everybody in that room, there was not a dry eye in the place. 
and she picked up her toys and we made her day. And for that moment, that moment is exactly why we do that. Twomley and the other better angels want to grow the project even more by getting more stations in New York City involved in collecting toys. After 37 years on the job, Twomley is thinking about retiring soon, but he doesn't plan to stop delivering joy. I actually ripped out my garage and put an office together, and it's just about done. So when I retire, that's going to be our main headquarters, and then I'm going to concentrate every year going around to all the post offices. On page 25 is Hotels for 2024 Boston Convention. NALC has made special arrangements with 19 hotels to accommodate letter carrier delegates attending the 2024 Biennial National Convention in Boston, August 5th through the 9th. All NALC block hotels are within approximately 2.2 miles of the convention center. The room rates have been set so that branches can begin budgeting for the convention. Please do not contact the hotels. All room reservations will be made through NEOC's official housing company. The list can be seen on page 25 of the December 2023 postal record. On page 26 is Proud to Serve, Honoring Heroic Carriers. Heroism, like the mail, comes in many packages. Think of police officers or firefighters. But for some citizens in need of assistance, their heroes come in the form of concerned letter carriers. Letter carriers are a member of nearly every community in this nation and know when something is wrong. Spotting fires and injuries, they often are the first to respond. The following stories document their heroism. For them, delivering for America is all in a day's work. Letter carrier becomes first responder after tornado strikes. Dante Jones was delivering on his route in Little Rock, Arkansas on a March Friday as bad weather approached. We knew a storm was coming, the Little Rock Branch 35 member, a carrier since 2018, said. Tornado warnings were starting to buzz on his phone, but he didn't pay them much heed. You get these all the time, he said, but you don't really think anything of it. That changed when a customer saw him delivering and said, You're still out here? The customer said a tornado had touched down nearby. Jones turned and saw a large tornado coming very close to him. It was big and it was brown and things were spinning, he said. The carrier got in his LLV and fled, but the tornado changed course and cut him off. He jumped out of the vehicle and found shelter at a nearby home until the twister passed. As he tried to get back to his station, he found the path blocked by a fallen tree. The same tree, he learned later, delayed police and firefighters from reaching the area. He noticed people, many elderly, outside seeking help, and he smelled leaking gas. Jones went to the doors of several homes and alerted residents to the danger of the gas leaks and helped them leave their homes as heavy rain poured down. The EF3 tornado damaged thousands of buildings, including several on the carrier's route, killed one person, and put more than 50 people in hospitals. It was really hectic that day, Jones said. The carrier plays down his heroism, though. I would hope, and I would think, that anybody would do the same thing, Jones said. Carrier Rescues Overdose Driver Wrapping up his route in Addison, Illinois, on a May afternoon, four-year carrier Andre Scott saw a truck pass him and recognized a postal patron as the driver. He soon caught up with the truck when it was stopped ahead, blocking traffic. Scott, a member of Oak Brook Branch 825, saw the driver slumped in his seat with his head down. When the man didn't react to Scott honking his LLV's horn, the carrier got out and tried several ways to get him to respond, including tapping firmly on his chest. The man finally lifted his head and Scott could see the veins in his eyes were blue, which Scott took as a sign he was deprived of oxygen. Scott turned off the man's truck and said to himself, This man is not going to die on me. He called 911 and continued trying to revive the man. 
Police arrived and determined that the man had no pulse and helped Scott take him out of the vehicle. The carrier began chest compressions and continued for a short time until paramedics arrived. They eventually revived the man using two doses of Narcan. Scott waited until emergency vehicles no longer blocked in his LLV before continuing on his route. Scott doesn't see himself as heroic. I acted on impulse, he said. It was overwhelming, but I tried to put it out of my mind. Eye on the elderly. After bringing the mail into an apartment building on his route with many elderly residents, I heard a muffled scream, Jacob Lee said. I thought maybe some grandkids were playing. But then the Akron, Ohio Branch 148 member, a carrier since 2016, heard the voice say, Help me! Lee searched for the door where the voice was calling from and banged on it. Please help me, the voice replied, and he knew he had the right apartment and went inside. I looked around. There was a refrigerator down, but no sign of a person. He called out and a voice came from under the refrigerator. 89-year-old Betty Rucker, a great-grandmother, had accidentally pulled the refrigerator on top of herself. Lees picked up the refrigerator and freed Rucker. She thanked him and asked him to call her family members, but he called 911 first. Lees stayed with the woman until an ambulance arrived. Then he went back on his route. He later learned that Rucker was hospitalized for a few days, but was not seriously injured. She told him she was thankful for his actions when she got home and saw him again on his route. I don't think I was a hero, Lee said. I feel like it's part of our jobs to look out for people. After 21 years on the job, Tamai Crowley knows her customers well. On her route on a cold, icy evening in Billings, Montana in November 2022, Crowley got out of her vehicle on her mounted route to bring an elderly customer's mail to his door so he wouldn't have to come to, uh, to his box in the bad weather. When she reached the door, the Billings Branch 815 member heard the man's smoke detector beeping. Looking in the window, Crowley spotted the man asleep in a chair, despite the beeping and the smoke filling the room. She knew he was hard of hearing, and the smoke alarm wasn't waking him. I started pounding on the door, kicking it, and ringing the doorbell, she said. The man finally woke up and came to the door, still unaware of the fire. He had no idea what was going on. Crowley called 911 and brought the man to safety. I got him outside, away from the smoke, she said. At the door, she noticed the fire was simply a plug-in cooking appliance with burning food inside, so she went inside and unplugged it. After the fire department arrived, Crowley returned to her route. U.S. Senator Steve Daines of Montana later honored Crowley for her actions. I didn't feel like a hero, Crowley said. I feel like I was just doing my job. Waiting in his station's parking lot on a Wednesday morning in June for his office to open, Rochester, New York Branch 210 member Vijin Manavasan saw an elderly woman dropping off mail at a drive through box. She tried to reach the blue box, he said, but hadn't pulled close enough. She opened the door without setting the brake. As the woman reached through the door, she fell out of the car and it moved forward. The carrier, who has carried mail since 2015, rushed from his own car to help. He jumped into the open door of the woman's car and stopped it before it collided with anything or anyone. The woman was shaken up, a little but unhurt, and she drove away after thanking the carrier. He went to work and didn't mention the incident. Managers only learned about it from other carriers who witnessed it. Carrier Sounds Fire Alarm Boston, Massachusetts Branch 34 carrier Danita Brooks Poindexter was heading back from delivering express mail on her route in Watertown in May when she spied black smoke in the air about a quarter mile away. She thought it was a car fire on the nearby interstate and continued her route, but she soon found the real source of the smoke on a residential street. I could see in between the houses that in the back of one house that there was a fire, the 26-year carrier said. 
I pulled out my phone to call 911, and at the same time, I could see a woman heading up the front porch stairs to knock on the door. I pulled my truck down further to go back and check on the tenants. Brooks Poindexter parked her truck and rushed to help. Then her attention moved to the house next door. As I got closer, I realized the neighbors had the music so loud that they would not know that there is a rapidly moving fire going on next door, she said. I feared that the neighbor's house could possibly catch on fire and they needed to get out. I banged and banged and banged on that door and someone finally came, she said. They were forever grateful that I knocked so hard to get their attention because they didn't know that there was a fire going on next door. Fortunately, the fire did not end up spreading beyond the one house. The carrier then went back to the house that was on fire to check on the elderly residents. She found an older man who lived there outside, and he confirmed that his wife was away and not trapped inside, but he was upset by the fire. She consoled him and made sure that he didn't try to enter the burning home. I just held him by the arm so he would not try to go back in the house because it was too dangerous, she said. With her truck trapped by emergency vehicles for a while, Brooks Poindexter consoled other affected neighbors until she was able to return to her route. I'm just glad that they all made it out safe, she said. The fire turned huge really fast. Coworker to the rescue. It was a right place at the right time situation, said 10-year carrier Jarek Thomas of his rescue of a fellow carrier in an LLV accident. Thomas, a member of Western Wayne County, Michigan, Branch 2184, was driving to lunch in Canton in July when he saw an LLV driven by a colleague and fellow Branch 2184 member, Megan Don, turning left from a parking lot and witnessed a car hitting her truck. It T-boned her, he said, and knocked the truck onto its side. Thomas pulled his own truck in the center lane to block traffic and rushed to help while calling 911. I could see her in the truck, he said. She was terrified. I can still hear the sound of her yelling for help. Due to the damage and position of the truck, both doors were blocked. Luckily, the impact had knocked the back hatch open. She found her own way to release the seatbelt, he said. Thomas helped Don out through the hatch. Miraculously, she had almost no injuries, though she was shaken up. I am 100% confident that the seatbelt saved her life that day, he said. He helped her calm down until paramedics arrived. Don went to the hospital to be sure she was okay, and Thomas returned to his route. To Thomas, assisting a fellow carrier was all in a day's work. For me, it was the only thing to do, he said. New Carrier Warns of Fire With only a few months of carrying the mail under his belt, Rochester, New York Branch 210 member Scott Fatacone found himself coming to the rescue of some of his customers. On his route in August, the carrier approached a house on his route in Rochester when he saw trouble. I noticed a little smoke coming out of the house, he said, and also saw insects flying out of a hole in the side. Looking in, he saw the insect nest and a fire that was agitating the insects. He could see that the fire was moving up to the second floor. The carrier banged on the door to warn the residents, and a teenage girl opened the door, but she didn't understand much English. I grabbed her and pulled her out to see the fire, so she would understand the emergency, he said. But the teenager still didn't understand the urgency of the situation. She began taking video of the fire with her phone. The carrier asked her who else was in the house, and she said her grandmother and a dog, so he urged her to go get both out of the house. When the girl grandmother and the dog were all outside and safe, the carrier went to the neighbor's house to alert them, too, in case the fire spread, but nobody answered the door. After fire personnel arrived, the carrier returned to his route. The next time he delivered his route, the carrier saw the aftermath. The fire department ripped out the whole side of the house, he said, but added that he was grateful nobody was injured or killed. A race to help a trapped woman. 
I was driving my route like normal, Arlington, Texas Branch 2309 member Tessa Rio said, when I heard a scream. The three-year carrier, out making deliveries on a March Wednesday, then saw a woman running toward her. Rios parked and got out to help, but the woman was panicked and screaming and couldn't explain the emergency. She was holding a phone and Rios heard a 911 dispatcher telling the woman to begin CPR, so Rios knew there was a life-or-death situation going on. Rios managed to get the woman to tell her which house to go to and went inside, where she found a woman in a bathroom who had collapsed. Her head was stuck between the toilet and the wall. Rios had to crawl under the toilet tank to free the woman. As she laid her down to prepare her for CPR, a distraught teenage girl, the woman's grandchild, appeared. Before Rios could begin life-saving treatment, EMTs arrived and took over, taking the woman to the hospital. Rios consoled the stricken woman's loved ones. I said a prayer for the family and gave them hugs, she said, and gave them her phone number in case they wanted to keep in touch. Rios later learned that the woman had died, but she saw the family a few weeks later, and they said that she had helped them get through the situation. You made a bad situation easier, they told her. I felt comfort knowing I could be there, Rio said, especially preventing the granddaughter from seeing the woman with her head stuck. She really appreciated someone being there for her, Rio said after meeting the girl again. Alert carrier uses CPR to save man en route. I was delivering mail like a normal day, Enrique Rosado said, when he saw two women in a front yard. It was a February Wednesday in Haines City, Florida. I thought they were doing yard work or something, he added. But then he saw the stricken man lying in the yard and heard one of the women screaming in distress. They were performing CPR on the man. The four-year carrier, a member of Lakeland Branch 1779, rushed to help. He checked the man's pulse and, hearing none, took over doing CPR. I did it about 10 to 15 minutes before the fire department came, Rosado said. As he and the woman watched, the EMTs attached an automatic chest compression machine to the man and revived him. They took him to the hospital where he recovered before eventually returning home. Rosado returned to his route once he saw that the man was in good hands. The man's wife, one of the women attending to him when Rosado found them that day, wrote to the postmaster that doctors told her that without Rosado's assistance, her husband would have died. Our family is forever grateful for his heroic efforts, she wrote. Rosado and the couple are now fast friends. I go visit him and see how he's doing, he said. Every time I see him, he has a water or snack for me. Carrier gives family time to say goodbye. On his route in Oak Ridge, Tennessee in April, Liam Bra spotted a customer getting out of his car and handed him his mail. The carrier, who has carried the mail for the postal service for two years, not counting another 12 years as a postman in his native Scotland, saw the man walk up a flight of stairs to his home. Then the man fell. He just dropped, the carrier said. He didn't go forward. He didn't go back. He just crumpled. The carrier called 911 and then checked the man's breathing and pulse. He didn't detect either. Having learned CPR from his soccer coaching days, the carrier began chest compressions. It just kicked in, he said. Emergency personnel arrived a few minutes later and detected a pulse, and the carrier saw the man's eyes open when he was carried into an ambulance and taken to the hospital. The carrier then continued on his route. He called the man at the hospital a few days later, who said he was very thankful for the carrier's life-saving efforts. Unfortunately, the man died a week or so later, but the carrier was happy that the man had time to see his family before his death. Though his colleagues at the post office recognized him as a hero, the carrier said the experience felt more strange than heroic. It didn't feel real, he said. Children safe from fire after carrier's efforts. On his route in White Castle, Louisiana, earlier this year, Dominic Jack had just delivered to a house at the end of a loop and was circling back when he saw trouble. 
I saw gray smoke coming from the back of the house, he said. The two-year carrier, a member of Baton Rouge Branch 129, knew there were children living in the house, so he rushed to help. I could hear somebody screaming, he said. He saw a small boy in the backyard afraid to move. He coaxed the boy to come to him to reach safety. Jack then encountered a teenage girl at the front and convinced her not to go back inside to retrieve her phone. He went through the back door of the burning house to rescue the children's grandmother, who he found near the door and helped her to the street. When he was sure all four children and the grandmother were safe, Jack went to the next-door neighbor's home to warn them because he knew there were elderly people living there, and then alerted the neighbors on the other side. The house on fire was completely engulfed by flames, but the others were not harmed, but more importantly, nobody was killed or injured. Due to the quick thinking of this carrier, we and several of our neighbors were able to get out of our houses safely and before the firefighters had arrived on the scene, one elderly neighbor wrote to the post office. Carrier Dominic is definitely an asset to the Postal Service and the community. It was just an instant reaction, Jack said, of his heroic efforts. I just did what I would do any day. Carrier supports family of suicide victim. On September 1st, Indianapolis, Indiana, Branch 39 member Sheila Alexander had just rung the doorbell of a customer's home after dropping a package. As she walked away, a young girl opened the door. She was so distraught, Alexander said. I could see the stress, the hurt, the pain in her face. The girl told Alexander that her brother had just attempted suicide in the home. Alexander, a carrier since 2012, raced inside and found their mother performing CPR on the brother. The carrier checked the boy's pulse and called 911 and then turned to the consoling the girl, who soon collapsed to the ground. When the girl said she wanted to take her own life too because she couldn't live without her brother, Alexander knew exactly what to say because she had faced similar tragedies twice. God put me in front of you for a reason, she told the girl as she hugged her. I lost my brother, who was my best friend, and I thought I wasn't going to make it, but I did. Alexander's older brother died in 2014. And just last week, she added, I buried my younger brother. When emergency personnel arrived, Alexander comforted the girl some more and then gave her her contact information, telling her to call any time. After finishing her route, Alexander checked on the girl again and found out that her brother had died. Alexander has kept in contact with the girl and helped her get through the tragedy. Neighborhood Watch Two-year carrier Kyle Mailman is helping Wichita, Kansas with a dangerous gopher problem. Recently, construction of a bridge spanning the Arkansas River was causing gophers to move into a residential area near the bridge. The gophers dug long tunnels underground, and when they encountered gas lines, they often chewed through them, causing dangerous leaks, Mailman said. Delivering the mail on a route in that area in April, the Wichita Branch 201 member approached a recessed door of a home to put the mail in a door slot. I'd heard a report in the area of people having gas leaks, he said. When he reached this door, the odor was unmistakable. I about choked right then and there. Mailman warned the woman who lived there. I knocked on the door rather feverishly, he said, and told her to call the authorities immediately. After experiencing the ill effects of breathing gas himself due to an unlit pilot light on a stove many years ago, Mailman could tell that the woman showed the signs of gas poisoning. When the gas company came to fix the outdoor leak, it also found a leak in a faulty valve of an indoor gas fireplace as well. To me, it's not really a big deal, Mailman said about his actions, which may have saved a life, because I hope everyone would be out there helping each other. Help on the way. Out on his route in Taunton, Massachusetts on a hot July day, Fall River Branch 51 member Tommy Howe thought the man sitting by the road with a push lawnmower resting on his legs was feeling the effects of the heat. 
It looked serious enough that Howe stopped to help the man. I tried to sit him up, Howe said, but the man lost consciousness and collapsed. That's when I knew it was serious, he said. I had to get help quickly. Howe, a carrier since 2007, spotted a pair of roofers working on a house nearby and yelled to them to assist. He took the lead, calling 911 and telling one roofer to flag down the approaching ambulance and gave the other one his water jug to give water to the stricken man. His lips were blue, so I knew it was a matter of minutes before he could die, Howe said. We basically kept him alive until the ambulance got there. EMTs arrived and managed to revive the man, who fully recovered. Though the man lost his memory of that day, he was apparently stung by insects and had an allergic reaction. The man was thankful when he talked to Howe later, and the city of Taunton gave him a certificate of appreciation. But Howe doesn't think of himself as a hero. I just happened to be at the right place at the right time, Howe said. I reacted. Cleveland, Ohio Branch 40 member Kevin Sufert has carried the mail for 26 years, but never needed to call 911 until last August, when he discovered a customer with a serious injury. The customer, who had fallen from a ladder while installing gutter guards on his home, had been lying on the ground for about 30 minutes when Sufert found him. He was entangled in the ladder, Sufert said. The man was awake but told Sufert, I don't have any feeling in my body. The carrier calmed the man and called 911 and the customer's wife. Sufert waited with him until paramedics arrived and then continued on his route. Sufert later learned that the man had made a miraculous recovery despite being paralyzed by the accident. He was in the hospital about 40 days, Sufert said. He was told by three doctors that he wouldn't walk again, but with a lot of rehab, he's using a walker. The thankful man is now back home. It made me feel a lot better that the man is recovering, Sufert said, but he did downplayed being a hero. I was just doing my job, he said. Just a few months into her job as a carrier in Cincinnati, Ohio, Michelle Wright encountered a life-or-death situation. On her route, the Cincinnati Branch 43 member saw a note on a customer's door. She thought it might be a routine message about the mail or a package, but it was anything but. It was a suicide note. If you are reading this, I am already dead, the note said. The author requested a call to her brother and included a phone number. Wright called 911 and waited for police to arrive and then called the brother and told him what happened. She then continued on her route. The brother later called the carrier and told her his sister had survived the suicide attempt and was getting help for her difficulties, and thanked Wright for possibly saving her life. Though the woman has since moved out, the memory is still with Wright. I always think about her when I'm on my route, she said. Wright said she doesn't feel like a hero. I was just in the right place at the right time, she said. It wasn't her time. God had other plans for her. Time running out for combined federal campaign. The open enrollment period for the Combined Federal Campaign, CFC, ends on January 15, 2024, so don't wait too long to make your contribution. CFC is the world's largest and most successful annual workplace charity campaign, raising millions of dollars each year. Federal and postal employees participate in the CFC by choosing from a list of charities to support through automatic deductions from their paychecks. For carriers, there's no busier period than the holidays, but it's also the time when we focus most on the needs of others, and you'll see President Brian L. Renfro said. Please try to find a moment to pledge to give to the charities you support. All active letter carriers can participate through payroll deduction. Participants may use payroll deduction, credit or debit cards, or bank accounts to make recurring donations. They also can make a one-time donation using any of these methods except payroll deduction. Participants can even volunteer for the charity and count the value of the hours as money raised. 
The easiest ways to sign up are through the CFC donor pledging system at cfcgiving.opm.gov or through the CFC Giving smartphone app available on the App Store and Google Play. Retired letter carriers may donate through a deduction from the annuity by making a one-time or recurring donation using a credit or debit card or through an automatic deduction from their bank account using the CFC donor pledging system. Letter carriers can choose from among 2,000-plus nonprofit charitable organizations to support through CFC. By looking at the list and choosing a charity's CFC number, you can donate directly to one or more charities. You can search for charities at cfcgiving.opm.gov offerings. For more information, go to neoc.org cfc. On page 32 is Recognizing the NALC Disaster Relief Foundation Contributors. The wildfire that destroyed a large part of Lahaina on the island of Maui in Hawaii on August 8th, killing nearly 100 people and destroying a post office and the homes of three letter carriers, is just one reminder from 2023 why the NALC Disaster Relief Foundation, DRF, was created. NALC founded the DRF in 2018 to ease the process of getting help to members affected by disasters. Numerous branches had asked NALC to establish a mechanism that would facilitate getting direct assistance to carriers. When a disaster strikes, DRF officers and directors quickly identify carriers who are affected and give them aid as soon as possible. The aid might include supplies such as food, water, clothing, and postal uniform items. Working closely with local branch leaders, the DRF helps members whose homes are uninhabitable find temporary housing and transportation, as well as apply for DRF grants. Before the smoke had cleared, DRF was on the phone with Lahaina Branch 5306 President Josh Doer, Honolulu Branch 860 President Howard Comine, and Hawaii State Association President Alvin Matsumura, collecting names and phone numbers to help with emergency funds for members in need and to check on all of the members. The fires in Lahaina and several other parts of Hawaii spread out of control due to drought conditions combined with high winds from a nearby hurricane, as well as potential human error. Fortunately, no postal employees lost their lives in the fire, but several carriers narrowly escaped the flames. The downtown post office in Lahaina was destroyed. In addition to the Hawaii fires, this year the DRF provided assistance to letter carriers affected by floods in Illinois, Michigan, and West Virginia, by Hurricane Adelia when it struck Florida and Georgia, by tornadoes in Georgia, and by Hurricane Hillary in California, which coincided with an earthquake. As this year's end approaches, letter carriers might consider donating to DRF, NALC President Brian L. Renfro said. The foundation is ready to provide rapid help for our affected brothers and sisters, Renfro said, but it can't do its job without our support. To recognize the, the generous donors to DRF, the postal record has printed a list below. The foundation provides aid in the form of supplies or grants and in-person assistance when needed. Grants are provided for property damage sustained to a primary residence, automobile, or personal property from causes such as hurricanes, floods, tornadoes, wildfires, earthquakes, or severe storms, and are provided only to NALC members. Donations can be sent to NALC Region 9, Attention, NALC, DRF, Christina Vela Davidson, 1101 North Chase Parkway, Southeast, Suite 3, Marietta, Georgia, 30067, 
or made by credit card by going to nalc.com slash nrdfdonate or by using the QR code below. You must enter your member number to donate. The foundation is a 501c3 organization. Contributions to the DRF may be tax deductible. It is recommended that you consult your tax advisor. Donations go directly to individual carriers or to branches needing assistance. No administrative costs are deducted. Members affected by a disaster do not have to wait for emergency relief or insurance claims to be settled to apply for help. Applications must be received within 120 days from the date of the natural disaster, unless the applicant can provide sufficient reasons for a delay. The application for a relief grant is on the Foundation's website, nalc.org disaster. If you have not donated yet, please help your fellow letter carriers affected by a natural disaster, Renfro said. Let's all donate to the Disaster Relief Foundation now so that it can be ready when disaster strikes. On the following pages are this year's donors to DRF. Please donate now to be recognized in the December 2024 issue. This is Sarah Thomas reading Executive Vice President Paul Barner's column titled Step B and the Dispute Resolution Process, Decades of Writing Wrongs Through Our Grievance Procedure. For most active letter carriers, the grievance procedure found in Article 15 of the National Agreement is the only contractual process they have used to grieve actions by management, but it hasn't always been so. There was a time from our first contract in 1971 until 1998 when NALC and USPS used a grievance process different than the one we have now. In 1998, the NALC and USPS jointly tested a new grievance procedure known as the Dispute Resolution Process, DRP, designed to reduce the backlog of grievances. This provided for a Step B Dispute Resolution Team, DRT, consisting of one union representative and one management representative. The DRT test was a success, as we were able to work together to resolve disputed grievances by writing contractually sound decisions that would serve to educate both union and management representatives. Due to the party's recognition of the benefits of the new process, DRP was negotiated into the 2001-2006 to National Agreement. Although the previous process had its merits, it was unable to accommodate the rising number of grievances during the 1980s and 1990s. Grievances rarely were settled at the local level, causing huge backlogs at Step 3 and arbitration. As a result, letter carriers had to wait longer and longer for a final decision on their grievances. Even though removals received priority scheduling for arbitration hearing dates, an unjustly fired letter carrier could wait as long as two years or more without pay for a hearing date. Another difference was that, prior to 1998, when carriers were issued a notice of suspension, they actually served the suspension time, losing pay for that period. This meant that managers were unlikely to settle those grievances, as it would often result in a payment to the grievant. Moreover, it was difficult for stewards to settle for less than full back pay as it meant the carrier would still lose some pay. As a result, grievance resolutions over suspensions were nearly impossible to attain, and because letters of warning could place a letter carrier one step away from a lost pay suspension, they were difficult to settle as well. The goal of the DRP, when it was implemented nationwide, was primarily to promote contract compliance, and when disputes arose, to use the Joint Contract Administration Manual, JCAM, to resolve them at the lowest possible level of the grievance procedure, which in most cases would be the local level. 
The DRP is a means of achieving a fair solution to a problem in a timely fashion and is specifically geared to protect our members from the issues that arise in the workplace. While our grievance procedure is designed to resolve issues at the lowest possible level, it requires that both parties bargain in good faith. Our Step B team representatives have a tough job, and it is not a simple task to resolve disputes between the parties. Currently, there are 59 full-time Step B teams, and we have 76 Step B teams activated. The NALC Step B representatives deserve a lot of credit and thanks for the job they do. Here is where we stand now. There are 10,781 cases pending a decision at Step B. Of those, 8,260 grievances have been at Step B awaiting a decision for more than 14 days. As you can see, we have some work to do to reduce the backlogged cases and address them in a timely manner. The case volume at Step B has nearly doubled in the last year. While we are aware that several factors contribute to the number of cases being appealed to Step B, we also have an increased impasse percentage rate from the Step B teams. Regardless of the backlog of grievances pending at Step B and the reasons behind it, we will continue to uphold our agreements and protect the rights of letter carriers. Everything within the DRP, outside of each party selecting their respective representatives, must be done jointly. The process works only if the members of the DRTs are committed to working together without outside influence. The National Business Agents, NBAs, and District Field Labor Relations Specialists, DFLRs, are responsible for overseeing and monitoring the DRTs in their respective jurisdictions. If process problems arise and the NBA and DFLR are unable to resolve the issue, guidance is sought at the national level. As of late, NALC has spent a significant amount of time addressing the Step B backlog we have experienced over the last year. We are working on ways to reduce and resolve more disputes at the local level in many locations. Again, we should never lose sight of the fact that the primary objective is to resolve disputes quickly and in accordance with the National Agreement, JCAM, as the creation of the DRP was intended to do. This is Sarah Thomas reading Vice President James D. Henry's column titled, Tis the Season. As we enter into the holiday season, most of us look forward with great anticipation toward good food, good gifts, and a good time. We anxiously await the joy on our loved ones' faces when their hearts fill with gratitude for the love shown during this time of year. As letter carriers, it is common for customers to also sow seeds of appreciation for the service their carrier has provided without fail throughout the year. Letter carriers are unique among professions in regards to the impact we have on our customers' lives. During this time of year, a letter carrier's job goes beyond delivering the mail. Along with delivering that much-anticipated letter, card, or package, we often deliver to our customers expressions of love. I distinctly remember, while employed overseas as a Marine, the best part of my day being that of receiving a letter and or care package from my friends and family. I also remember seeing the joy in my customers' eyes when I carried mail and delivered communications they were awaiting. What a sense of fulfillment. Despite this time of year being traditionally the most labor-intensive for letter carriers, it is a job we all take pride in doing. Carrying your routes and performing the inordinate amount of work during this season is a labor of love. We all know that it is hard work sometimes, but necessary work that only a special breed of men and women do willingly and cheerfully. Sometimes, the letter carrier is viewed as the joy of the season for certain customers. 
Our customers can depend on their carrier looking out for their well-being, providing a receptive ear, and being the one consistent visitor when there are few. It is a responsibility we undertake proudly. Not only do our customers have reason to be grateful for their letter carriers, we similarly have absolute reason to be grateful. The unfortunate reality is that not all can say they have a job that is able to put food on the table, clothes on our backs, and a roof over our heads, in addition to providing our families with most, if not all, of their needs and wants. I'm proud to be a letter carrier and a member of the NALC. We care and help not only the public, but each other. I encourage all not to be weary of doing good, but to continue to make a difference in each other's and your customers' lives. Letter carriers display care for others and engage in caring activities throughout the year. Tis the season? Yes. Tis the season for us all to take a little extra time and make just a little more effort during this time of year to be a bit more compassionate, thoughtful, considerate, caring, and aware of our ability to help someone in any capacity we can. To put a smile on someone's face. To be good to each other. To reaffirm that we are always here for one another. Tis the season to be grateful and thankful. Tis the season for me to wish you all a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. The NALC Shop Stewards Guide, along with many grievance starters, is available on the members-only portal. The NALC Shop Stewards Guide is written for every NALC member who handles grievances at the informal Step A and or formal Step A of the grievance procedure. The guide is only available through the members-only portal, allowing NALC to update the guide in real time and ensure that all stewards, activists, and members have access. To access the guide from the NALC website, log on to the members-only portal and click the Members Documents button, where you will find the Shop Stewards Guide and the available grievance starters in a drop-down menu. Hi, this is Nicole Ryan, National Secretary-Treasurer, and this is my December Postal Record article called Minimum Dues Increase, Convention Registration and Housing Process. There will be a biweekly dues increase for 2024 due to the cost of living adjustment achieved with the national agreement. The dues change will take place in pay period one of 2024 and will be reflected beginning with the January 5th, 2024 paycheck. The minimum dues structure set forth in Article 7, Section 2A of the NALC Constitution is the equivalent of two hours base pay for an NALC Step D letter carrier in the Consolidated Career City Carrier Grade Level Table 1 per month. Since dues are deducted biweekly, this amount will be $30.97 for 2024. National retains one-third of this amount, $10.31, and remits the other two-thirds to the local branches with some withheld for state associations and remitted by national headquarters to the state associations monthly. Some branches may have dues that are higher than the minimum dues structure. Also, branches may increase local dues during the year. National Convention. The official convention call to the 73rd Biennial Convention of the National Association of Letter Carriers to be held in Boston August 5th through 9th of 2024 has been mailed to each NELC branch and state association. The branch convention call included a branch delegate allotment card advising each branch of the maximum number of delegates it can send to the convention per the provisions of Article 4, Section 1 of the NALC Constitution, which provides for one delegate for each 20 members or fraction thereof. 
The number of delegates a branch is entitled to is based on the branch's active and retired membership as of October 1st of the year preceding the National Convention, the benchmark date adopted by the delegates to the 2004 National Convention. Branch officers should read the convention call thoroughly because Articles 4 and 5 of the National Constitution, provisions concerning the election of delegates, voting strength, and related issues are explained. Information regarding the room rates of the NELC block hotels was provided on the NELC website and additional information is provided in this issue of the postal record. The reservation process does not start until February and not until the branch's delegate eligibility list is received, delegates are registered, and the credentials are sent to the branch secretary. NELC headquarters will be advising its official housing company of all confirmed registered delegates. Anyone booking a room who is not a confirmed registered delegate at the time of the booking will be subject to cancellation and will receive a notice of such. Any individuals who call NELC headquarters to inquire about making reservations are advised that they must go through their branch to make reservations and that this cannot be done until the delegate eligibility list has been received and processed and credentials have been mailed to the branch secretary. Do not contact the host branch officers about housing. They will not be able to assist you. The delegate eligibility list will be mailed to each branch on or about February 1st and must be returned to my office no later than June 5th. The delegate eligibility list lists the branch's regular members in good standing as of December 31st, 2023. No housing information is included in the mailing of the delegate eligibility lists. Branch secretaries should read the enclosed instructions thoroughly, complete the delegate eligibility list fully and accurately, sign it, keep a copy for the branch, and return the original to my office. As a reminder, all branches have the option to register their delegates electronically rather than checking off the delegates on the delegate eligibility list paper list. The letter and sign-up form for the option to register electronically was mailed to all branches in November, the sign-up form must be returned to my office no later than December 31st. After my office has received the delegate eligibility list and registered the delegates, the credentials will be mailed to the branch secretary. Included with the credentials is, is information on the housing process. This information includes a web address and a code specific to your branch so that you can reserve rooms for your delegates. Branch secretaries may prefer to copy the instructions and give them to each delegate to make their own reservations. For branch secretaries or delegates who do not have internet access, NELC will include with their credential mailing a room reservation form with a fax number, along with the phone number of the housing company. Branch secretaries with no internet access may make reservations for all their delegates in this manner or may wish to copy the forms and give them to the delegates. Again, branch secretaries are reminded that no housing information will be included in the mailing of the delegate eligibility lists around February 1st. That information will be provided when NELC headquarters mails you the credentials. Branches and individuals are not to contact hotels directly and must wait until credentials and NELC housing instructions are received. Hello, this is Oscar Ferreira, Assistant to the President for City Delivery and I'll be reading Director of City Delivery Christopher Jackson's December Postal Record article titled COTS Vehicle Pilot Test and MDDTR Updates. In the past articles, 
I have shared information about the Postal Service's need to replace older model vehicles in the delivery fleet. In working to replace these vehicles, the Postal Service is scheduled to deploy the next generation delivery vehicle, NGDV, in mid to late 2024. However, the NGDV is not the only option the Postal Service is considering for the delivery fleet. This month, I would like to share information on the latest commercial off-the-shelf COTS vehicle model that USPS is evaluating, along with a recent update to the mobile delivery device MDDTR. Morgan Olson C-250 Pilot Test In October, the Postal Service notified NALC of his intent to pilot test a Morgan Olson C-250 vehicle at six locations across the country. The Morgan Olson C-250 is a COTS internal combustion engine, ICE, that operates on pump gasoline. USPS states the purpose of the test is to evaluate the performance and maneuverability of the vehicle when utilizing Postal Service operations. Recently, my staff and I visited the USPS engineering facility in Maryfield, VA, to review this new vehicle. The C-250 is equipped with many of the modern features found in today's passenger vehicles. A key fob is used to unlock the doors and to start the engine. A panel inside the cabin area holds push-button controls for a fan that is mounted on the dashboard, heated driver's seat, steering wheel, and side mirrors, LED lighting for the cabin and cargo areas, and exterior rear auxiliary strobe lights. There is a control for switching the vehicle between two-wheel drive 2WD and four-wheel drive 4WD to accommodate handling in various weather conditions. Additional cabin area controls operate the radio, power windows, hazard lights, heating, and air conditioning. A small monitor mounted above the steering wheel displays video feeds from cameras installed above the passenger side cargo and rear doors of the vehicle as well. The C250 is a right-hand drive model that is the same height as the current long-life vehicle, LLV, but extends 4 feet longer. The vehicle has approximately 250 cubic feet of cargo space, which is more than twice as much storage space as the LLV. The cabin area is equipped with a built-in passenger jump seat that also folds down into a tray for mail handling. There is no interior door connecting the cabin area to the cargo section. Therefore, a carrier will need to exit the cabin to access mail loaded into the cargo section. The rear and cargo areas are accessible through roll-up shutter doors. The cargo area has one shutter door on each side of the vehicle. The area contains two levels of shelving with six rectangular sections. Many of the sections feature rollers along the bottom for sliding equipment from one side to the other. A drop-down cover is attached to one of the sections on the driver's side providing a second working tray for mail handling. A large compartment aligned with netting is located in the rear of the vehicle. This compartment also functions as a large sliding tray. When the bottom handle of the compartment is lifted, the carrier can slide the entire section out through the rear door. This area also is accessible from either side of the vehicle by unhooking the attached netting. Testing of the C-250 is being conducted November 6, 2023 through February 16, 2024. MDD Software version 7.80 Also in October, the Postal Service shared the latest update to the MDDTR, release 7.80. The update includes several enhancements that will affect city carriers. One enhancement to the MDDTR is related to the certified mail processed into the delivery point sequence DPS automated mail. In my October column, I discussed the notification received from USPS dealing its plan to conduct a pilot test using the MDDTR to communicate with carriers when they have certified mail in their DPS. During the pilot program, the MDDTR notified carriers as they approached the certified mail delivery point using its GPS capabilities. 
The device also tracked the total number of certified mail pieces and delivery attempts the carrier made throughout the day. Then the option to conduct a certified mail review was presented to the carrier at the end of the tour. Through software update 7.80, the certified mail test features have now been implemented on all MDDTR devices nationally. For more details regarding the pilot test, please see my October column. Another feature of release 7.8 is a pop-up reminder for carriers to enter their vehicle return mileage before ending their tour for the day. As a carrier breaks the geofence of the delivery unit when returning from the street, a reminder will display, please remember to enter ending mileage for the day. If the ending mileage is not input when the carrier attempts to enter an in-tour, the scanner will display the message, ending mileage has not been reported. Please press enter to proceed. After pressing enter, the scanner will redirect the carrier back to the ending mileage entry screen. The MDDTR will not accept an end-tour clock ring for the carrier until a vehicle return mileage is submitted. In closing, I want to remind carriers to be mindful of the safety hazards on the street when loading and unloading from the rear of the vehicle. My staff and I will continue to monitor these initiatives and provide updates to the membership. Be sure to read my article each month and visit NALC.org for the latest information. Hello, this is Manny Peralta, your Director of Safety and Health. This month's column, I'm going to address retaliation against injured employees. It has been quite a while since I have addressed the issue of whistleblower protection, so here we go. In April of 2022, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, revised its whistleblower investigations manual. And in reviewing it, I wanted to address a few items. The NALC has bargained a very sophisticated grievance procedure that requires us to identify what happened, which rule was violated, and what we seek as a remedy. The membership of the NALC has been well represented by its shop stewards, branch officers, and regional representatives in the processing of their grievances. Further, we have developed a well-trained cadre of arbitration advocates who present these cases to the assigned arbitrator. Our advocates have done an outstanding job upholding the contract. If you are terminated and you believe that your rights have been violated, you have the right to file a grievance and the union has the right to move that grievance forward if it too believes that your rights were violated. If you suffer an injury and management issues you discipline or retaliates against you in other ways, you again have access to the grievance procedure. If, however, you are a new city carrier, your rights to protest determination begins after 90 days for a PTF, and if you're a CCA, your right to protest determination through the grievance procedure is conditioned on your completion of 90 workdays or 120 calendar days. See the reference to this at page 1612 of the 2021 Joint Contract Administration Manual. What if you've not completed your 9120, suffer an on-the-job injury, and are then terminated? If you are in such a situation, management often believes that it is free to wash its hands of you, and it takes the action simply because it thinks it's free to do so. Are you without any rights? Is there anything the NALC can do? The answer to the latter is yes, but it is limited. There are times that the law and or federal regulations protect us beyond the reach of our grievance procedure, as I'll explain below. The Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970 created OSHA 
for the purpose of promulgating and enforcing standards. This law also established the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health for the purpose of conducting research and recommending occupational safety and health standards. When this law was written, it contained a section intended to protect employees against retaliation. That rule is found in Section 11C of the OSH Act and reads as follows. One, no person shall discharge or in any manner discriminate against any employee because such employee has filed any complaint or instituted or caused to be instituted any proceeding under or related to this act or has testified or is about to testify in any such proceeding or because of the exercise by such employee on behalf of himself or others of any right afforded by this act. Two, any employee who believes that he has been discharged or otherwise discriminated against by any person in violation of this subsection may, within 30 days after such violation occurs, file a complaint with the secretary alleging such discrimination. Upon receipt of such complaint, the secretary shall cause such investigation to be made as he deems appropriate. If upon such investigation, the secretary determines that the provisions of this subsection have been violated, he shall bring an action in any appropriate United States District Court against such person. In any such action, the United States District Courts shall have jurisdiction for cause shown to restrain violations of paragraph one above and order all appropriate relief, including rehiring or reinstatement of the employee to his former position with back pay. Number three, within 90 days of receipt of a complaint filed under this subsection, the secretary shall notify the complainant of his determination under paragraph two of this section. So what does this mean? It means that you have the right to file a whistleblower complaint through OSHA to protest retaliation by management, any adverse action that you believe violates the law as written. Once a complaint is filed, OSHA's team is responsible for conducting an investigation. What do they investigate? Best to turn to the investigative manual beginning at page 23 in chapter 2, which explains, in general terms, a whistleblower investigation focuses on determining whether there is reasonable cause to believe that retaliation in violation of an OSHA whistleblower statute has occurred by analyzing whether the facts of the case meet the required elements of a violation and the required standard for causation, i.e., but for motivating factor or contributing factor. Second, elements of a violation at page 24. An investigation focuses on the elements of a violation and the employer's defenses. The four basic elements of a whistleblower claim are that one, complainant engaged in protected activity. Two, the respondent knew or suspected that the complainant engaged in the protected activity. 
Three, complainants suffered an adverse action. And four, there was a causal connection between the protected activity and the adverse action, also known as nexus. Subsection A, protected activity. The evidence must establish that complainant engaged in activity protected under the specific statute. Protected activity generally falls into a few broad categories. The following are general descriptions of protected activities, specific information on the protected activities under a specific statute can be found in the desk aid for the specific statute. If there is any inconsistency between this general information and the information in the desk aid, follow the more specific information in the desk aid. One, reporting potential violations or hazards to management. Reporting a complaint to a supervisor or someone with the authority to take corrective action. Two, reporting a work-related injury or illness. Reporting a work-related injury or illness to management personnel. Three, providing information to a government agency. Four, filing a complaint. Filing a complaint or instituting a proceeding provided for by law, for example, a formal complaint to OSHA, under the OSH Acts Section 8F. Five, instituting or causing to be instituting any proceeding under or related to the relevant act. Examples include filing under a collective bargaining agreement, a grievance related to an occupational safety and health issue or other issue covered by the OSHA-enforced whistleblower protection laws, and communicating with the media about an unsafe or unhealthful workplace condition. Six, assisting, participating, or testifying in proceedings. Section B, employer knowledge. The investigation must show that a person involved in or influencing the decision to take the adverse action was aware or at least suspected that complainant or someone closely associated with the complainant such as a spouse or co-worker engaged in protected activity. C. Adverse action. An adverse action is any action that could dissuade a reasonable employee from engaging in protected activity. Common examples include firing, demoting, and disciplining the employee. The evidence must demonstrate that complainants suffered some form of adverse action an adverse action usually must relate to employment, but other statutory provisions like Section 11C, which do not specify that the retaliation must affect the terms or conditions of employment, adverse action need not be related to the employment. Section D, nexus. There must be a reasonable cause to believe that the protected activity caused the adverse action at least in part, i.e., that a nexus exists. As explained below, depending on which law is involved, in the case, the protected activity must have been either a but-for-cause of the adverse action, a contributing factor in the decision to take adverse action, or a motivating factor in the decision to take adverse action. The above is a simplified listing of what the investigator needs to look into 
to determine if the four required elements of a whistleblower violation are in fact present. How can you help? From your first day of employment forward, keep track of the work you are assigned and the time it takes you to do that work. Keep track of your working relationship with your supervisors and managers, taking note of any feedback they give you. If you suffer an injury and report it, and then things go sour, you may need to file a whistleblower complaint and be at the ready to explain how things changed when you reported the injury. If you need to file a whistleblower complaint, go to whistleblowers.gov forward slash complaint underscore page. Remember, you have a 30-day time limit from the date of the adverse action to initiate a complaint. As I close on this month's column, I would like to take a moment to say farewell to a close friend of over 30 years. Al Affelbaum passed away on October the 12th. Al started his post office career in 1968 and served as a shop steward, union activist, and officer of Santa Clara, California, Branch 1427. In December 1990, Al was appointed as a regional administrative assistant in Region 1 by President Vincent Sombrato. Al served in that position until President Sombrato appointed him as an assistant to the president at NALC headquarters beginning in 2001. Al retired in early 2012 after serving the NALC at the regional and national level for 22 years. Upon his retirement, he returned to serving his branch until his death last month. Al is survived by his wife, Dina, his daughter, Danielle, and his grandson, Joseph. In closing, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to all. Be safe and keep an eye on each other. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel Toth, your Director of Retired Members. I'll be reading my December 2023 article titled Withdrawal Rates. Planning for retirement is in large part a financial question. For some, it is the only question. Although this column regularly reviews the retirement benefits of city letter carriers, it is intentionally avoids providing financial advice. Although this article will continue that tradition, it will discuss withdrawal rates. Withdrawal rate is an important topic to address so that those planning for retirement or even those who have already retired can have a ballpark understanding of how much money they can withdraw from their thrift savings plan, TSP, for an indefinite horizon. Conversely, an understanding of withdrawal rates helps one understand how much they need to save up for retirement based on an expected budget. One withdrawal method is often referred to as the 4% rule. It's fairly simple. The idea is that a retiree can withdraw 4% of their retirement account each year, year after year, and not run out of money. For example, if your TSP is $400,000, then the 4% rule says you could withdraw $16,000 per year, $1,333 per month, for the rest of your life. It is important to point out that nobody can predict the future and that there is always some risk with some withdrawal rate. To better understand the risk, we should look at the history of the 4% rule and how it was derived. Prior to 1994, the adage was typically that one could withdraw 5% per year. One financial advisor decided to challenge this guidance and analyze historical data of stock and bond returns over a 50-year period. William Bennigan, 
the financial advisor, found that a 4% withdrawal rate would survive nearly every scenario, good and bad. This change to the guidance helps ensure retirees saved enough prior to retirement and do not face a significant risk of outliving their savings. As the 4% rule was derived by analyzing historical data, we should be reminded that past performance does not dictate future performance. There is always some inherent risk. There are many factors that could impact your nest egg and desired withdrawal rate, such as rising medical expenses and a personal tax rates. The makeup of a portfolio also is vital. This is the portfolio allocated entirely in stocks or bonds, or is it diversified? The 4% rule was derived using 60% equities and 40% bonds, but at a time when bonds had a higher return than they do now. Of course, the performance of the market is a substantial factor. Keep in mind that the 4% rule is just general guidance. If the market is performing poorly, one might cut back on some expenses and withdraw less. Typically, if the market is performing poorly, there is an economic impact such as inflation or higher interest rates, which might make it easier to cut back as one waits for a better deal on non-essential items such as travel and entertainment. Alternatively, if the market is overperforming, you might be able to spring for that luxury you've been dreaming about or helping the kids out without serious long-term risk to your savings. Some might go with a more conservative withdrawal rate of 3.5%. They might have personal factors, such as an expectation of living longer than average. The lower withdrawal rate increases the chances that the savings will last their lifetime. Others might want a lower withdrawal rate for a different reason, knowing that their savings will be passed on to a loved one. On the other hand, those with a shorter life expectancy might be more aggressive and opt for a 4.5% withdrawal rate to get the most out of retirement. Fortunately, the TSP withdrawal options are flexible and can accommodate various goals. In particular, the TSP provides options for installments, automatic withdrawals, or partial distributions of a specified amount. There is no limit on the number of partial distributions except that no more than one will be processed in a 30-day period. You can even make partial distributions while you are receiving installments. One approach might be to start with a conservative withdrawal rate in the form of installments, and if needed, supplement with a partial distribution or simply increasing the withdrawal rate. Be mindful that increasing your distribution may have an impact on your effective tax rate and or Medicare premium. Every person will have a deeply personal decision to make when it comes to withdrawing their retirement accounts. They may need to weigh their retirement goals, expenses, budget, risk tolerance, and other benefits to help them determine how much to withdraw from their retirement accounts or how much they can afford to. If you decide that a financial advisor is right for your situation, be sure to understand all of the costs and whether the advisor has a fiduciary's duty to you. Bear in mind that TSP fees, expense ratio, can be hard to beat with the C fund at 59 cents for every $1,000 invested. Hi, I'm Jim Yates, your NALC Director of Life Insurance. Today, I'll be reading my December 2023 officer's column titled MBA Retirement Savings Plan 2024 Update. The Mutual Benefit Association offers several retirement savings plans for all city letter carriers who are members of the NELC and their families. 
These plans are the MBA Retirement Savings Plan, the MBA Family Retirement Savings Plan, the City Carrier Assistant Retirement Savings Plan, and the MBA Immediate Annuity. The MBA Retirement Savings Plans are retirement income plans designed to supplement your pension. You make small payments to your plan while you're working so that you can receive a lifetime of monthly payments after you retire. The MBA Retirement Savings Plans are offered as traditional IRAs, Roth IRAs, or non-qualified annuities. With a traditional IRA, the contributions you make each year may be deducted from your federal taxes. In addition, earnings accumulate tax-free until the time of withdrawal. Upon distribution at age 59 and a half or older, the earnings and principal, your contributions, are taxed as ordinary income. For 2024, the maximum annual contribution per individual under age 50 has increased to $7,000. If you reach the age of 50 or older before the end of 2024, you may contribute an additional $1,000 in catch-up contributions. Owners of a traditional IRA must take a required minimum distribution beginning at age 73. Contributions to a Roth IRA are not tax deductible, but earnings accumulate tax-free. At the time of withdrawal, earnings are free from taxes if the owner has held the IRA for a minimum of five years and is at least 59 and a half years old. The contribution limits for a Roth IRA are the same as for a traditional. Owners of Roth IRAs or their surviving spouse do not have to take required minimum distributions from it during their lifetime. Beginning in 2024, your beneficiaries no longer have to take required minimum distributions from your account after they inherit it. Similar to a Roth IRA, contributions to a non-qualified annuity are not tax deductible. However, your earnings on that money are taxed when you withdraw it from the account, regardless of how long you have held the account. The principal has already been taxed and is not taxed again upon withdrawal. There is no contribution limit as there is with a traditional or Roth IRA. A non-qualified annuity is not subject to required minimum distributions. Participation in an MBA retirement savings plan is easy. Once enrolled, you can simply make small contributions as low as $15 per pay period, $25 per month with an initial $1,000 deposit for a family retirement savings plan, or a minimum premium payment of $25,000 for an immediate annuity. The easiest way to pay for active city carriers is through automatic deduction from your paycheck. You can adjust how much you want to contribute, stop and start making payments, or pay in lump sums whenever you want. MBA will handle the automatic deductions or bill you monthly or annually. When a participating CCA becomes a career employee, they may transfer their traditional IRA funds to the thrift savings plan or continue the plan with the MBA to have an additional source of retirement income. The MBA will waive the surrender charge in this instance only. Due to IRS regulations, Roth funds from a personal IRA account cannot be transferred into the TSP. The interest rate for all MBA IRAs are set by the trustees each December for the following year. For 2023, the interest rate was set at 2.80% for all new accounts and those issued on Form 860, 2015 or newer. As of this writing, the rates for 2024 have not been set. Check back here next month. The rate in effect at the time of purchase will remain in effect for 12 months, then re-rate to the current year's percentage. From that point on, the interest rate will change every January based on the trustee's decision in December but will never go below the guaranteed minimum interest rate of 2%.
For the rates on older contracts, please see our website, nalc.org backslash MBA, or call the office if you are not sure which contract you have. If you need emergency cash, you can stay in the MBA Retirement Savings Plan while withdrawing money anytime after one year, subject to certain minimums and limitations. However, during the first six years you are in the plan, you will pay a surrender charge on the amount you withdraw in addition to any IRS penalties if applicable. You also can surrender your plan for its cash value at any time, subject to the same surrender charges listed above. In next month's article, I will discuss your payout options for when you decide to collect your annuity. For more information regarding any of the MBA products, please call the MBA office toll-free at 800-424-5184, Tuesdays and Thursdays, 8 a.m. to 3.30 p.m., or call 202-638-4318, Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 3.30 p.m., all Eastern times. You also can visit our website at nelc.org backslash MBA. I'd like to take this time to wish everyone and their families a happy holiday season and a happy and healthy new year. Hi, I'm Stephanie Stewart, your Director of Health Benefits. And for my December officer's column, I would like to talk about a new prescription drug plan for Medicare eligible retirees. I am excited to announce our new prescription drug plan for our high option Medicare eligible retirees that begins in January of 2024. Since this is a new offering, I thought it was pertinent to take some time this month to discuss the benefits. The new coverage is called SilverScript PDP. NEL's SilverScript coverage combines a standard Medicare Part D prescription drug plan with additional prescription coverage provided by the plan. The additional coverage is designed to close the gaps between your standard Part D plan and your current coverage. I know that many of our members are comfortable with the plan's current prescription benefits and prefer not to experience change. However, the new coverage has been custom tailored for participants in the NELC Health Benefit Plan and will provide you with even more savings. Our SilverScript PDP was built in a way that allows our members the ability to take advantage of lower cost medications associated with Medicare Part D, but that also provides assurance that you will never pay more than you pay for your existing prescription coverage provided by the plan. The move to SilverScript will change the way the NELC HPP delivers affordable prescription drug coverage and will allow the plan to offer a better benefit to our Medicare-eligible retirees and their covered Medicare-eligible dependents. Specifically, this move allows the NALC HBP the ability to provide each SilverScript enrollee with a Medicare Part D premium reimbursement of up to $600 each year. The SilverScript prescription drug plan offers an extensive network of pharmacies that includes national change, an inclusive formulary or drug list of Medicare Part D drugs, coverage of some drugs that are not covered by Medicare, CVS Caremark Mail Service Pharmacy for your Part D maintenance drugs or prescriptions commonly used to treat conditions that are considered chronic or long-term, specialty pharmacy services for complex condition medicines that require special handling, refrigeration, and education and support. 
To make it easy for our members to take advantage of the cost savings associated with our new prescription coverage, the NELC Health Benefit Plan will automatically enroll you in our Silver Script Plan unless you are currently covered under a Medicare Advantage plan. We will also submit your enrollment to Medicare and pay the Medicare Part D premiums on your behalf. Although there are many financial benefits to enrolling in the program, if you do not wish to be enrolled, you will be provided an opportunity to opt out and remain within your current prescription coverage. During the opt-out period, there will be no requirement to submit physical or electronic notices to SilverScript. You will simply be able to call and instruct the representative to remove you from the SilverScript plan. Upon opting out of SilverScript, you will automatically remain with your current NALC prescription plan, which does not include any reimbursement towards your Medicare B premiums. Members will receive a new identification card from SilverScript to use at the pharmacy, but your medical identification card will remain the same. Beginning on your effective date, you will be able to fill your prescriptions at your local pharmacy within the SilverScript Pharmacy Network or through the CVS Caremark Mail Service Pharmacy. However, if your spouse or dependent child has prescription drug coverage through the plan and is not enrolled in SilverScript, they will continue to use their current identification card through the NELC HBP to get their prescriptions filled. I believe that SilverScript is an excellent offering for our eligible members and an opportunity for those enrolled in Medicare to acquire additional savings. We know that this has changed in the administration of your retiree prescription drug plan and that you may have many questions. Please know that we are diligently working to make this change as seamless as possible and to provide you with a positive experience. If you have any questions, please contact us. By the time this article reaches you, open season may be nearing a close or possibly already have closed. If you are a current member and chose to stay with us, I would like to say thank you for your dedication. Your commitment is appreciated more than we can say. If you are a new member who has enrolled or may be considering us as an option, then I also say thank you for adding us to your list and giving us the chance to stand out. Together, let's make 2024 an even healthier year. In closing, I would like to take this time to wish you and your families a joyous holiday season and a happy new year. Until next month, take care. Hi, I'm Christopher Henwood, Assistant to the President for Administrative Affairs. I'll be reading the December 2023 contract talk titled, Retirement Processing Issues. The Office of Personnel Management, OPM, administers the Civil Service Retirement System, CSRS, and the Federal Employees Retirement System, FERS. OPM is the federal agency that has authority to decide all matters regarding CSRS and FERS retirements. OPM determines whether a letter carrier is eligible to retire, how much the carrier will receive in retirement, and deals with a host of related issues. OPM has its own internal appeals system that is available when a retiree believes an OPM decision is wrong. Since OPM is a separate federal agency and not a party to the collective bargaining agreement between the USPS and NALC, no decision, action, or lack of action by OPM can be challenged using the grievance procedure. However, OPM requires employees to apply for retirement through their own federal agency, including the Postal Service. 
Likewise, OPM requires the Postal Service to process the retirement applications of employees. The OPM regulations regarding the processing of retirement applications of employees by agencies are complex. Many of these regulations are explained in OPM's CSRS FERS handbook, which is available online at opm.gov. The regulations pertaining to retirement within the Postal Service are found in the Employee and Labor Relations Manual, ELM. Section 560 of the ELM explains the process for employees covered under CSRS, while Section 580 describes the rules for those covered by FERS. These sections of the ELM reflect many of OPM's regulations regarding retirement applications. If there is an apparent conflict between OPM regulations or policies in the Postal Service ELM provisions regarding the processing of retirement applications, OPM's regulations control. Section 581.2 of the ELM states, OPM administers the basic portion of FERS. The FERS laws, policies, and regulations issued by OPM, including those governing employee eligibility and benefits, are controlling in the event of conflict with the information contained in this subchapter. End quote. Article 21, Section 3 of the National Agreement incorporates the provisions of CSRS under 5 United States Code, USC 83, and FERS under 5 USC 84. It follows the Postal Service violations of OPM regulations, ELM provisions, Step 4 settlements, etc., regarding retirement processing issues can be addressed through the grievance arbitration procedure, provided the grievance is a current employee at the time of filing. Footnote 1. As a general matter, non-employees, including retirees, do not have standing to initiate grievances. Major exception to the general rule is Memorandum of Understanding regarding debts of retired employees, found on page 217 of the National Agreement. One retirement application processing issue seems to be widespread. It has to do with the Certified Summary of Federal Service, CSOFS form. For FERS employees, it is Standard Form 3107-1, and for CSRS employees, it is SF2801-1. The Certified Summary of Federal Service is the form that agencies use to certify to OPM the dates of the retiring employee's creditable service, which includes career service and may also include creditable non-career, military and part-time service, etc. This is a critical form because both an employee's eligibility to retire, as well as the amount of their annuity, are based on the total years and months of service. Here's what OPM CSRS First Handbook, Section 40, A3.1-1B says about the form. B. CSRS forms to be completed by agency. The personnel office must prepare a certified summary of federal service, SF2801-1, that lists the employee's verified federal, civilian, and military service. Note, the employee should review and sign the certified summary of federal service. However, If the employee is unable to sign the certified summary, the agency may submit the form to OPM without the employee's signature, end quote. Section 40A3.1-1.D goes on to clarify that the Certified Summary of Federal Service for FERS employees uses a different form number, stating, D, FERS forms to be completed by agency. The forms to be completed by the personnel office in the case of a FERS employee are the same as those used for a CSR employee, with the following exceptions. The Certified Summary of Federal Service is SF-3107-1, end quote.
The instructions on the form itself are also clear. The first set of instructions on the form pertains to information for the agency. Item number one requires a certified copy of the form to accompany the employee's application for retirement. The second set of instructions is to be completed by the employee. The instructions state, one, your employing office will complete and certify this form for you. Two, review this form carefully. Be sure it contains all of your service. Three, complete section E, employee certification, and return the form to your employing office, end quote. Section D of the form includes a line for signature by an official from the employing agency certifying that the service history information on the form accurately reflects official agency personnel and or payroll records. Section E of the form is titled Employee Certification and includes a line for the employee's signature. The service histories of most employees are relatively straightforward, with a beginning date of career service through the anticipated retirement date but other employees may have made a deposit for military or non-career civilian service, accumulated more than six months of leave without pay, LWAP, in a calendar year, or have more than two months of aggregate LWAP due to an accepted on-the-job injury. These scenarios make reviewing and certifying the service history even more important as they are more prone to error and are vital in making fully informed retirement decisions. Despite the clear guidance and form instructions, the Pulse Service Retirement Counselors at the Human Resources Shared Service Center, HRSSC, routinely provide blank forms to retiring employees without any service history information. Some retiring employees have been told that they should sign the blank form and that the form would be filled out later by the Postal Service. No employee can reasonably be required to sign a document certifying that the information provided by the Postal Service on the document is accurate when there is no information provided on the document. Employees who do not trust the Postal Service to certify that correct service should request the form be completed so that it can be reviewed in accordance with the instructions provided by OPM. Those who choose to submit a blank form can do so without a signature and it should not delay your retirement. Insistence by HRSSC counselors that retiring employees sign a blank certified summary of federal service should be challenged through the grievance procedure, if necessary, as this is contrary to the provisions set forth by OPM. Employees who are denied a completed form can consider asking their shop steward to investigate. Remember that any grievance must be initiated prior to separation and then submit the application with the blank unsigned certified summary of federal service. Employees should not have to delay their retirement due to retirement processing issues by the Postal Service. The consideration of the proper remedy in such a case is very important. In addition to a cease and desist to protect future retirees, an important remedy to include during a retirement processing grievance is compelling the Postal Service to recertify to OPM the employee's service history, if it did not do so correctly in the first place. This is because OPM will rely solely on the service history provided by the Postal Service. It generally will not consider employees' statements and documentation. The best way to fix such a situation is to have the Postal Service recertify the correct service history. This can become complicated as the grievance would be filed prior to the employee's separation, but if the Postal Service initially refused to complete the certified summary of federal service and the employee retired without it, the Postal Service doesn't complete the form until a later date, post-separation. 
This creates a situation where the Certified Summary of Federal Service cannot be reviewed when a grievance is initiated. A mutual agreement to extend the time limits of the grievance, such that the Certified Summary of Federal Service can be properly reviewed for accuracy, can be an efficient method to either correct the issue or to ensure that the proper remedy is included. Grievances that are advanced to the next step prior to review of the Certified Summary of Federal Service should be sure to include a remedy that provides for recertification of the form as necessary. Retirement is a critical benefit that letter carriers have earned through their years, if not decades, of service. Mistakes by the Postal Service when processing retirement forms have a substantial financial impact on retirees. Shop stewards and branch officers play an important role in ensuring that letter carriers are provided with the benefits to which retiring employees are entitled under the law. On page 48 is the MDA report written by Christina Vela Davidson. Get ready for a new year. Sisters and brothers, I want to wish you a warm and safe holiday season. For those who have met me and those who have not, I love my job and I take it to heart. Being selected and supported by Frederick V. Rolando and having the continuing support from President Brian L. Renfro makes all the difference. Remember that our community service programs help us maintain a positive public image and are a civic duty. They help us with elected officials and are an asset in negotiations. They help us build trust, relevance, and relationships within our communities. The joint mission of NELC and the Muscular Dystrophy Association, MDA, is to free individuals from muscle-debilitating diseases and to be a source of comfort and hope to patients and their families. Every day, people go to extraordinary lengths to advance this mission. I know I keep repeating myself, but the fact that there are sisters and brothers picking up the poster record for the first time and who might be reading this and finding new or different ways to raise money for MDA is a subject always on my mind. NELC was the first national sponsor for MDA, and letter carriers are among MDA's top fundraisers, collecting millions of dollars over the years to finance research and provide care and services to children and adults with muscular dystrophy. Your efforts also help children go to summer camp, which allows them to just be kids for a week. A new year is coming, and that means a new year in which we can raise money for MDA. Branches across this lovely nation, including those in Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Virgin Islands, all raise money in different ways. One of the easiest ways is to join an MDA event or create your own event to raise vital funds to help MDA families live longer and grow stronger. We have branches of all sizes out there raising money for MDA, from very large branches such as New Jersey Merge Branch 38 to very small ones like Manawak, Wisconsin Branch 490, and branches in between such as Erie, Pennsylvania Branch 284. At this time, all three branches are at the top of their respective categories in fundraising. With a new year approaching, I want to start early and ask you to share your ideas. Share your thoughts. Share the methods behind the fundraising madness. The more we help and share with each other, the more money we can raise for MDA. You can share your ideas on the NALC MDA Facebook page at facebook.com slash deliver the cure. Participation in these events creates excitement within your branch, knowing you've made a big difference in the lives of kids and adults with muscular dystrophy. MDA representatives are available to support you in your fundraising efforts as a branch and as individuals. Here are some easy ways to raise money for MDA. Raffles, car washes, yard sales, shamrocks, satchel drives, Texas Hold'em tournaments, follow state laws, local credit union partnerships, bowling tournaments, pool and dart tournaments, comedy and karaoke nights, charity golf tournaments, cornhole and beanbag tournaments, bake sales, 
bingo nights, branch member donation drives, pancake breakfasts or spaghetti dinners, muscle walks, 5K Tough Mudders, trivia tournaments. So many ideas to choose from and probably many more ideas out there that can be shared. Remember, our commitment to MDA is here until a cure is delivered, no matter how long it may take. If your branch has not participated in years, please feel free to contact me at 202-662-2489 or mda at nalc.org and together we can make a plan for your branch to begin participating. New MDA Support Team Sabrina Allen, Senior Director, Organizational Relationships Jessica Marcus, Specialist, Organizational Partnerships They can be contacted at nalc at mdausa.org 312-392-1100 or at this address Muscular Dystrophy Association, Inc., Attention, NELC, P.O. Box 7410354, Chicago, Illinois, 60674-0354. All funds raised for MDA in 2023 must be received by December 29th by mail to the address above to be counted in this year's figures. As a reminder, all checks and offline gifts received by the branch should use the NELC MDA allocation form. Please mail me copies of any receipts or checks along with a copy of the NALC MDA allocation form so that your branch can be properly recognized. The NALC MDA allocation form must be turned in the same calendar year of the event, no later than December 29th, in order to qualify for the NALC honor roll for that year. Please send copies by December 29th to me at the Region 9 MBA office, 1101 North Chase Parkway, Southeast, Suite Number 3, Marietta, Georgia, 30067.